More than 100 million people across the U.S. are in the path of a major winter storm that could bring life-threatening wind chills. For Massachusetts, the biggest threats are fierce winds and pelting rain tonight and tomorrow, and then plunging temperatures on Saturday. It's Thursday, December 22nd, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, what 2022 has been like for a Ukrainian activist and her family living through the war provoked by Russia's invasion eight months ago. Americans are stressed and anxious about a range of things, inflation, politics, and war. But psychologists say there are ways to manage anxiety. Things that help our environment feel more orderly can sometimes help our mental state feel less overwhelmed and distressed. Some tips and tools to tame anxiety coming up. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A winter storm that the National Weather Service calls a once-in-a-generation event of its kind threatens to derail travel plans from coast to coast in the run-up to Christmas. Thousands of U.S. flights have already been canceled through tomorrow because of the heavy snow, high winds, and frigid temperatures expected to bear down on much of the lower 48 in the next few days. More than 90 million people are under some form of a winter storm alert. NPR's David Shaper is tracking the storm and its impact from Chicago. Meteorologists say what makes this storm unique is the powerful icy winds and rapidly falling temperatures, plummeting by 20, 30, and even 40 degrees in some places in less than 30 minutes. Mike Bardu is with the National Weather Service's Chicago office. Our concern here is not about the amount of falling snow. There's going to be enough snow that combining with the winds uh, to create treacherous driving conditions at minimum. As you go to outer areas, more open areas, uh, significant blowing and drifting is, is going to be possible to the level where people may get stuck in drifts. Temperatures are already well below zero in several northern states and are forecast to fall below freezing as far south as Texas and Florida. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. Under pressure to get home before bad weather hits, members of the U.S. Senate were able to approve final passage of a nearly $1.7 trillion government spending bill before tomorrow's deadline. The legislation keeps federal agencies funded through September of 2023. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer held up today's 68 to 29 vote as a bipartisan success. This two, these two years in the Senate and House, in the Congress, was either the most productive in uh, 50 years, great society, or most productive uh, in 100 years since the New Deal. So I think it's been extremely, extremely productive. The bill includes money for Ukraine aid, defense, and disaster response. The U.S. House is expected to take up the legislation today before President Biden signs off on it. Well, today marks an end of an era. Nancy Pelosi has given her final regularly scheduled press conference as Speaker of the House. She's been the chamber's top Democrat for nearly two decades, and as the only woman to hold the top post, she has actively worked to recruit more women to Congress. Here's NPR's Eric McDaniel. When she came to Congress in 1987, Pelosi says she was one of just 23 women in the House. The next Congress will have 124. Her advice to incoming women? Be yourself. She says she certainly has. Sometimes when I act a little more, shall we say, like myself, <laughs> it's because I want them to know it's okay to assert yourself, to have confidence in what you bring to the table. Pelosi will step down from leadership next month, but will remain in Congress. Eric McDaniel, NPR News. The GOP rises to majority in the House next month. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is preparing for tonight and tomorrow's stormy weather. Mayor Michelle Wu says the biggest threats for the city will be localized flooding and high winds of 50 to 60 miles an hour. Boston is also expecting about two inches of rain and falling temperatures Friday night into Saturday that could lead to flash freezing. We'll have more in the forecast coming up. The storm is already affecting areas of the Midwest and that has generated a domino effect at Logan Airport. Nearly 200 flights to and from Boston have been delayed today. More than 40 have been canceled. The Boston Police Patrolmen's Association wants to go to arbitration as it seeks a new contract with the city. The union filed a request with the state's Joint Labor Management Committee this week. Officers in the association have been without a contract since 2020 and says current contract talks have stalled. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu told WBUR Monday that she remains hopeful for an agreement. A member of the Massachusetts congressional delegation is echoing Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's request for more aid to fight the war with Russia. WBUR Samantha Kutsia has more. Congressman Seth Moulton visited Ukraine this month. After seeing this situation firsthand, he agrees with a lot of what President Zelensky said in his speech to Congress last night. Moulton says the aid the U.S. is giving Ukraine is not a charitable donation. It's an investment to protect national security. It's a down payment on saying that we're not going to let this happen, so don't even try somewhere down the road. Ultimately, that saves lives, that saves money. So it's not just about Ukraine today, as much as they deserve our help. It's also about us. Moulton wants to speed up the process of getting more resources to Ukraine. He says if Russia isn't stopped... It may come for a NATO country next. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. In the forecast tomorrow, should feature rain, coastal flooding. It'll be hang on to your hat weather. WBUR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce has details. The wind will have the biggest impact on us with the storm coming in. Numerous gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour, isolated gusts to 60, resulting in scattered pockets of outages tomorrow pre-dawn through the evening. Then the cleanup will be a little hindered on Saturday, especially early with some gusts to 40 miles per hour. Meantime, some light rain arrives this evening. It's going to rain hard tonight through tomorrow afternoon. Around two inches of rain for many, localized flooding. Then cold air blasts in, some snow showers and slippery travel by tomorrow evening. The chill is here to stay this weekend. Highs in the 20s, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, wind chill in the teens. It is 43 degrees now in the Boston area. There's a combination of light rain and snow in western Mass right now. As the storm moves eastward, we will keep an eye on the forecast throughout the afternoon and evening and tonight here at 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As this year has unfolded, I have kept up a running conversation with a fellow mom named Hannah Hopko. I first met and interviewed Hannah in January in Kiev, Ukraine. She was convinced there would be no war. Well, I left Kiev. We stayed in touch. And I called her again on February 24th, the day of the Russian invasion. Hello? Hello, Hannah. This is Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Hi. 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 Hi, hi Mary Louise. Hi. Hi. By that point, Hannah had evacuated her daughter. She and her husband and the family's pet guinea pig had gone into hiding because Hopko, a pro-democracy activist and former member of Ukraine's parliament, suspected she was on a Russian kill list. When I caught her, she sounded exhausted, but 
not afraid. Are you scared? No, it's not time to be scared. Putin has to be scared because he is a little gangster with the heart full of fear. A little gangster with the heart full of fear. Well, I have met Hannah Hopko twice since then here in Washington. She flies over to meet members of Congress and the Biden administration to ask for more weapons to fight Russia. As 2022 comes to a close, a year that has upended her life and her country, I wanted to interview her again. And I reached her today at a hotel in Warsaw, Poland, and asked her reaction to the visit Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, just paid to Washington, a visit during which President Biden promised more aid for Ukraine. I was uh, very proud of uh, seeing two leaders President Biden and President Zelensky, because it's about strategic partnership to protect freedom and the victory of Ukraine will define the world in which our children, grandchildren will live. It's not about standing with Ukraine as long as it takes. It's about winning with Ukraine faster. You've said this every time I've interviewed you. You've said give us more, give us more faster, we need more weapons, fight with us and help us win quickly. I mean, President Biden, not only they announced $1.8 billion in military aid, they're asking Congress for many times that. And now the Patriot missile system. Do you feel like America is fighting with you, is standing with you? Um, I'm very thankful to American people. I'm also very thankful to presidential administration and Congress, bipartisan support. But my message is that Russian strategy of terror, which we were warning about from spring, so now in winter, we are facing the problems. If we were received anti-air defense system more in summer, so now we would not focus on generators and how to protect our nuclear power plants, uh, uh, Marie Louise. From the first time we met in Kiev in January, uh, I lost a lot of friends who sacrificed their lives defending freedom of the free world and Ukraine. So time matters for us. It's not about number of weapons we already received. It's about how to receive at the level when it would be enough that the best and the brightest people of Ukraine will not be killed. We want to save lives. So this is why we need more weapons and even more. Talk to me, Hannah, about what life is like in Ukraine right now. The headlines we hear that it is very cold, that a lot of people do not have electricity, do not have water. What, what is life like compared to this time last year? I know you were just in Ukraine a couple of days ago. Uh, can you imagine your life when you cannot take shower for weeks do not take shower and somehow survive but when there is no electricity no heating system and uh, poor internet connection for me it's not a problem but for elderly people it's a huge problem they cannot use elevators and they cannot psychologically afford all this Russian terror when they weaponized winter and want to freeze uh, all Ukrainians. Weaponize winter, is that what you just said? That yes. Russia is weaponizing winter? Yes. I want to ask how your daughter is and Nafanya, her guinea pig. <sighs> um, uh, I'm thankful to God that my daughter is alive. But for the last 10 months, I saw her in summer. For uh -huh. seven days, 10 months, one week of seeing my daughter. 
Because you have been working and you're trying to keep her somewhere safe in a way. Safe and also I feel this moral duty. When my daughter is in safe place, I have to help my country to win faster. How do you explain to your daughter what is happening in Ukraine? And what questions does she ask? So um, today is the day of uh, diplomats and also St. Anna Day. And my daughter sent me uh, in WhatsApp like uh, greetings and saying, Mom, I believe victory comes faster and we will be all together in a peaceful Ukraine. So f- can you imagine that from 2013 hmm. to 2022, my daughter is living in the environment when seeing her mom in constant uh, fight from uh, Maidan in 2013. When the revolution, we went to protest, yeah. And it was the revolution and it was very dangerous for her. And she's how old now? On in March, she will celebrate her uh, 12 years old birthday. She sounds just like you. <laughs> she, she wants to fight. She wants to win. She wants a peaceful Ukraine. Look, in four years old, she asked me, Mom, if Putin dies, you will finally stay home and not leave in me? Yeah. And before I let you go, I don't think you've told us, is the guinea pig okay? Ah, guinea pig. Ah, I haven't seen, uh, seen our guinea pig from August, when guinea pig moved from outside Kiev for my friends to uh, Western Ukraine. And I'm sure if guinea pig stays with me for all these months and hear all my talks about weapons, tougher sanctions, uh, he would finally start speaking (laughs) very loudly and saying like, Hanna, please, what should I do? Maybe I should organize a campaign worldwide asking all guinea pigs to come to key capitals because I don't want to be freeze. I want to uh, finally to be all reunited. So even guinea pig became an advocate for for weapons. Uh, look, I have this sense of humor, but the situation is really very serious. Hannah, I want to say thank you for talking with us, with me all this year. Uh, you've really helped me, and I think a lot of Americans understand the stakes. What is at stake for your country? And I wonder, is there anything you want to say to Americans who are listening right now? I want to to say to all American friends, honestly, thank you. Because without your support, without your humanity, morality, without being with us, you Americans should be proud of your empathy. Because we are spiritual brothers and we will win because of your very big hearts. It's not just fight for Ukrainian territorial integrity. It's about being human beings. Hanna Hopko. She's the former head of the Committee on Foreign Affairs in Ukraine's parliament. She now chairs the Democracy in Action conference. Hanna, thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Holiday lights can transform the mundane into magic in deep winter. NPR's Brian Mann visited a light display in New York's Adirondack Mountains that also weaves in the enchantment of music, dark woods, and fresh snow. I'm walking down a bridge that in the summertime would be going along the edge of a little pond here, but now it's covered in ice and snow and 
The bridge is just completely decked in white lights. Night comes early here in the north. It's already pitch black. In the distance, I can see the Wild Center. It's a nature museum in Tupper Lake, New York. But this glowing path leads the other direction, into the trees. We're standing in the middle of a snow-covered forest. That's my friend Catherine Seidenberg, who's sharing the walk. We look up at big white pines, their trunks wrapped in blue, yellow, and rose light. It's really pretty and magical. And there's pools of different colored light reflecting down on the snow. And there's ethereal music playing. The museum's crew decorates this forest every year, making these luminous paths. And they also enlist a composer to make music. We find Bonnie Durbin walking arm in arm through one of the pools of light with her husband, Gil. They got this music playing, and it's just nice to get away and enjoy the walk together and, you know, get a little peace. It's cold. I can see my breath in the colored light. There are people everywhere in heavy coats and mittens. The crunch of the snow, it's just gorgeous. It's just a Christmas scene. Terry Lowe and her husband, Ralph, are walking close together, keeping each other warm. Well, we recently had uh, like two feet of snow, so all the trees are beautiful. They're all green. Chill in the air. And then you have a nice musical accompaniment. We walk on deeper into the woods, where more people are gathered, their faces glowing in the light. So I've come to a place in the forest where a sculptor has woven branches and twigs, and it's kind of like a big, beautiful nest. And then the nest is covered with lights. It's like mesmerizing, like there's so much to look at at once. Jocelyn Dubry has come with a friend, Skylar Spore, both bundled against the cold. It's honestly magical. Like, this place feels blissful. People just stand, looking, a lot of them holding each other. Outside this circle of light, the woods are black. Wilderness stretches away in every direction, icy and still. But here in the glow, it feels a little like church. Brian Mann, NPR News in Tupper Lake, New York. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Americans are stressed out and anxious, but psychologists say that even with the stressors of inflation, conflict, and political rancor, there are ways to bring anxiety under control. That story is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In business news, a December sell-off on Wall Street. The Dow lost about 1%, 349 points, to end the day at 33,027. S&P fell nearly 1.5% to close at 3822. The Nasdaq gave up nearly 2.25% to end the day at 10,476. The company that managed construction of Worcester's minor league baseball stadium, Polar Park, has reached a settlement of nearly $2 million with the state. The agreement resolves allegations that the joint venture company Gilbane Hunt misled city officials by overstating the percentage of women and minority-owned businesses subcontracted for the project. About one-quarter of the money will go to the city of Worcester. It says it will use the funds to promote the participation of women and minority-owned businesses in government contracting. It's 420. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. The stormy forecast. We should see rain sometime after 9 tonight. Winds pushing 25 miles an hour after midnight could be stronger in some cases. About an inch of rain overnight tonight, anywhere between a half inch to an inch more tomorrow. Rain coming down at a pretty good clip through the day with winds of anywhere from 25 to 55 miles an hour tomorrow. Warm, about 57 degrees. The storm dies down Friday night. Sunshine, colder temperatures for Saturday and Christmas Day with highs in the 20s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. A new survey by the American Psychiatric Association finds that nearly 40 percent of respondents across the country rate their mental health as only fair or poor. More than half say they're feeling anxious about the uncertainty of the coming year. And a significant number of respondents said their New Year's resolutions would include efforts like exercise and meditation to better manage their psychological well-being. So today, to close out this week's series on anxiety, NPR's Ritu Chatterjee shares some tips and tools to help tame anxiety. Think back to the times you felt extremely anxious. Maybe your heart was racing, you were breathing fast, completely unable to focus on whatever you were doing before your anxious thoughts spiraled into a canyon of dread and doom. Psychiatrist Dr. Jesse Gold has some tips to help calm you in those intense moments. And so what we often tell people in those situations is to use tools called grounding, meaning you're really focused on where's my body in space, where are my feet, where are my hands. Anything that can pull your attention away from your racing anxious thoughts and toward your body and your five senses. Gold, who's at Washington University in St. Louis, says there are other tricks as well. Some people also like to just look around their room and name like five things they can see, four things they can hear, three things they could touch, like kind of down the senses. And that can be helpful. I'm a big like stress ball person, too. So anything that you can kind of grab and and ground yourself in what you're doing. She says another way to calm down in the moment is to change your body temperature quickly by doing something physical like running up and down the stairs or holding an ice pack to your neck and face. And if you're brave enough to do this, try taking a cold shower. Which I've personally done, and it's pretty miserable, but it can help you kind of get out of really strong feelings pretty quickly. That kind of brief discomfort to the body helps it relax, the way deep breathing does. Psychologist Alyssa Apple is at the University of California, San Francisco, and the author of the new book, The Stress Prescription. It turns out that our body loves short shots of stress and is not just more relaxed, but more rejuvenated from a cellular level. 
after stress. It's why we feel relaxed after a high-intensity workout. And Apple says doing these things on a regular basis also improves mood and makes us more resilient to stress in the long run. So, for example, hot saunas can help with anxiety and depression. Cold showers or ice immersion, they also can help with coping with anxiety and stress. And when it comes to other long-term strategies, here's one thing you need to know about anxiety. Psychologist Crystal Lewis is with the National Institute of Mental Health. What I always say is uncertainty is a breeding ground for anxiety. And so these past few years, we've been experiencing a lot of that. Lewis says one way to counter the impact of all the external uncertainties is to focus on aspects of life that you can control. It might be something in your household, parenting with your children, anything that you can do to build up your routine and create a schedule can be helpful and just give you the sense of efficacy that there are certain things that you're able to control during these these tough times. Even doing little jobs around the house can help. Psychologist Lynn Bufka is with the American Psychological Association. Decluttering getting the dishes done or things that help our environment feel more orderly can sometimes help our mental state feel less overwhelmed and distressed. Because first of all, that can happen because we're demonstrating, I do have some agency. I can take care of some things. Bafka says studies show that seeking out nature is also very helpful. And you don't have to drive to a park and hike several miles to do that. You could have a houseplant. You could take care of a houseplant. Sometimes Taking care of something and seeing it grow reminds us that change can happen and that good things can happen. And when the world around us feels shaky and uncertain, Bafka says, it's just as important to acknowledge that times are tough and there are things that are beyond our control. Learning to acknowledge and let go of those worries is also key to calming an anxious mind. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. The artist Burnaboy fills up arenas around the world with fans who come to hear his music. And now he's dipping a toe into a different medium with a documentary short about environmental destruction in the city where he grew up, Port Harcourt, Nigeria. Everybody is made a smoker because of the exposure to the black suit. This is a city on Nigeria's southern coast. More than three million people live there. That's the place that taught me about life, really. The film shows images of black smoke in the air and floodwaters in the streets. Burnaboy told me, as bad as it is for everyone in Port Harcourt, those who have the least power feel it the most. The people who have the worst end of the stick, you know, the people who have, who have basically been forgotten by everyone and by the government and by the powers that be, and just, you know, just forgotten. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the part that really breaks me the most, you know, to see that there's actually people that have been forgotten. And when you show up in your hometown and you meet these people, what do they say to you? You, this global superstar who's, you know, made it huge on the world stage. Man, I mean, obviously it's a combination of, oh, people wanting to know how to to just get out of the situation they're in. And after that, it's, it's, it's usually like, you know, you know, they just want to hear stories and, you know, they still keep smiles on their faces. It's still... I don't know. It's, it's almost like my people are superhuman, man. Like, we mm. don't, it's, you know, like, no matter what happens, we still find a way to put smiles on our faces, man. It's, mm. You know, even when we should be crying all day long. <laughs> yeah. You know? There's a song called Whiskey on your latest album, which touches on some of the themes in the documentary. I want to listen to a little bit of it with you. Some people bind and cast. Some 
of them pray and fast. As is a pastor, then they fat. Shall not the thing we got command. Because of oil and gas, my city so dark. Pollution make the air turn black. Every man have to stay on guard. So, Burna Boy, tell us about how you approach the task of interpreting these themes through music. I mean, for me, that's the easiest part for me because I feel like that's, I don't know, something I've always done is, I feel like for me, that's what, that's the most special thing about music, you know, is the fact that it can be a source of real-time newscasting in a way, hmm. even in the way that people that who not watch the news because all they hear is bad news and they feel like it's boring or whatever, like, they can't escape this reality. This, you know, like, for me, putting in the music is the easiest part. Is there any part of you that's afraid when you go from singing about good times to instead singing about bad times, fans might say, eh, that's not what we're here for? Well, then they should. I have no problem losing fans because of that. So that's not something that... <laughs> that's You've got not enough fans that, by now. Exactly. I have, no, I have no problem. Anybody who is not comfortable with hearing the reality, my reality, has no business being my fan. That was Burna Boy. His short film on Port Harcourt, Nigeria, is called The Black River Whiskey Documentary. Tomorrow we'll talk with him about his music career and his latest album called Love Damini. Then they break a ball and stagger, so I'm moving cloak and dagger. Might see me in a black bandana, in a Lambo with Joey Zaza. Diamond teeth with a pocket full of rubber, no shirt, you can look at them rubber. Since I started the carry my mother no be now, we could cut my dada. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Antibiotics are a product, and products need R&D and marketing and investment. Large pharma companies, uh, which traditionally have developed these antibiotics, have largely exited uh, both the research space as well as the commercialization space. I'm Kai Rizdal, Antibiotics as a Business Proposition, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. The Senate has passed a $1.7 trillion bill to finance federal agencies through September of next year. The bill also includes aid to Ukraine. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the measure is a win for Americans. We funded um, the government with an ingress aggressive investment in American families, American workers, American national defense. It's one of the most significant appropriations process packages we've done in a really long time. The measure now moves to the House, where it's expected to pass. Without the bill, a partial government shutdown will happen at midnight on Friday. Parts of Colorado are in the grips of record-setting cold. From member station KUNC, Alex Hager reports that's because of a unique set of circumstances. It didn't just get cold, it got cold fast. One weather station in Denver saw a 61-degree drop-off in just one day. That's the third sharpest single-day change ever. David Bargenbrook is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says those changes are extra likely in the terrain of the high plains. That's because it's a, that battle of that warm downslope air and then suddenly replaced by this very cold Arctic air. 
um, that we have moving in. And it's just a lot easier to do here than, let's say, farther back, uh, you know, toward the Midwest. Temperatures should warm back up by the weekend, with some areas getting up into the 50s by Sunday. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager. A federal judge is granting bail to the former head of the FTX cryptocurrency platform that crashed spectacularly recently, setting off accusations of fraud. Sam Bankman-Fried will be allowed to post a $250 million bond and live in his parents' California home while he awaits his trial on charges that he swindled investors and looted customer deposits from FTX. It was a down day on Wall Street again. The Dow lost 348 points to close at 33,027. The S&P 500 was down down 56 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Officials in Boston say they're ready to face tomorrow's storm that will feature heavy rain and the potential for power outages. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. Boston will likely experience winds of up to 50 to 60 miles per hour tomorrow. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is urging people to report down trees and power lines to 311 so city crews can clean them up. We are ready for this, but I just want to especially thank our city workers because it is a holiday weekend that this is, um, they are sharing their time away from their families as well to make sure we are all safe and prepared. Wu says coastal flooding could be a problem in certain areas of the city, with water levels reaching as much as three feet above high tide because of storm surge. Falling temperatures Friday night into Saturday could also lead to flash freezing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The MBTA is canceling all ferry service tomorrow because of the storm. The Steamship Authority has not yet canceled any service between Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket, but it warns cancellations are likely for part or all of tomorrow and Saturday. The storm is already dropping snow in the Midwest and upstate New York, and that is causing flight problems at Logan Airport. More than 200 flights have been delayed there and around 50 canceled today. We'll have more on the forecast in just a few minutes. Travel experts are predicting nearly pre-pandemic levels of people People making trips this holiday season. AAA expects over two and a quarter million Massachusetts residents to travel between now and New Year's Day. AAA Northeast spokesperson Mark Shieldrop says the increased popularity of remote work might provide a slight reprieve from the traffic, especially after the holidays. Hybrid working is definitely more popular than it was. Yeah, there are plenty of people that have to be in the office nine to five, five days a week. But people are increasingly able to be a little bit more flexible. So we're seeing the return home trips often spread out over a couple of days. Still, Shieldrop advises that travelers tack on an extra hour or two to GPS predictions when they hit the road around the holidays. The state has named a temporary replacement for MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak. Deputy General Manager John, uh, Jeff Gonneville will take the reins on January 4th, the day after Poftak steps down. This will be Gonneville's second stint as interim GM. He also filled the role in 2018. He's expected to stay on as interim GM until Governor-elect Maura Healy permanently fills the position. 45 degrees now in the Boston area. The forecast live coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. The storm that's sweeping across the U.S. is now at our doorstep. As we've been saying, the timing is pretty rough for travelers. WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyes is tracking the storm. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Lisa. Good to be with you. You too. Uh, I know you've been very busy because the storm is carrying a lot with it, heavy rain and strong winds, but not much in the way of snow, at least for the Boston area. Is that still the case? 
Yes, I'm actually looking at the live radar right now because there are some blues and whites showing up, but it's mainly in western Massachusetts, down near Hartford, maybe a couple flurries. Um, but for us here in and around the Boston area, this is a mainly rain event. There may be a couple snowflakes that mix in in northern Worcester County this evening very briefly, but we're going to get warm. It's going to be in the 50s tomorrow, so this is an all-rain event. If it were snow... It'd be a little bit of a different scenario. We may be talking about feet of snow, and that's not the case this time around. And uh, we're talking about, I guess, inches of rain. You can tell us more about that. But when should it all begin and where? So in the next few hours, we're going to get some scattered rain showers that fill in. And then after that, it turns to a steadier light rain. Um, Overnight, especially after midnight, it rains hard at times, embedded downpours that will linger into tomorrow morning for the morning commute and for those that are traveling. I do think by... Probably early to mid-afternoon tomorrow, we'll start to see things taper off a little bit from west to east from the Worcester to Boston stretch. Like if you're traveling along the Mass Turnpike, um, you know, things should slow down by mid-afternoon. There may be a few showers that linger until the early evening hours, but the bulk of the heaviest rain by far falls tonight until about late morning tomorrow. So for tomorrow's afternoon commute right around this time, um, not quite as tough as the morning commute? Definitely worse in the morning. I do think there'll be a few leftover showers, but the intensity of the rain and the coverage of the rain won't be as bad at this time tomorrow compared to tomorrow morning. Absolutely. And what about the winds? Ooh, the wind, I think, honestly, is going to be the biggest thing that folks remember from this storm. So, you know, a lot of times we talk about the wind just gusty in one spot, you know, on the Cape or at the coastline, but this is a region-wide wind event. So, After midnight tonight, the wind's going to ramp up. It's coming out of the southeast. I expect numerous gusts, 40 to 45 miles per hour. And then probably like 3 a.m. until about 8 or 9 a.m., there's a brief window where we may gust 50, 55, even isolated 60-mile-per-hour gusts as some of that heavy rain comes in. So that will result in scattered pockets of outages, particularly inside of 495. I do think a little core of some of the heaviest wind will come in at that point. Um, And then during the afternoon, the wind may let up, you know, just briefly a little bit. And then late in the day, the wind shifts around and will gust 40 to 50 again late in the afternoon into the evening. So it's kind of a two-pronged wind event that comes in tomorrow. So a lot of people have travel plans. Um, What should those who are flying or or driving know, especially uh, depending on if they're driving, where they're going? I would say, you know, if they're driving, oh, it's tough depending on where you're going, right? Northern New England is going to see a burst of snow if you're headed to parts of Vermont, New Hampshire, or Maine, but that will change over to rain. There is going to be some big wind similar to what we'll see in Boston tomorrow. So definitely the slowest go in terms of weather impacts tomorrow. The other thing I want to mention is tomorrow evening, even though the rain's going to be ending, uh, there's going to be a sharp drop in temperatures tomorrow evening, about 6 to 8 p.m., Uh, Think about it. We're going to get like one to two inches of rain. So any leftover moisture that doesn't dry out, there'll be some puddles, some standing water is going to freeze up on anything untreated um, out there. So some icy patches, some slick spots tomorrow evening may develop pretty rapidly. So just keep that in mind if you are going to be traveling tomorrow evening. Uh, You know, I like to say keep a close eye on the car thermometer. We're going to see a sharp fall from the 50s to the 30s pretty quickly. uh, And that's going to create some slippery travel for sure tomorrow evening. And then recap the weekend, Saturday and then Christmas Day, Sunday. Ooh, chilly. (laughs) But at least it's much quieter. There won't be any precipitation to worry about. There may be a few... um, kind of ambiance, nice little snow showers on Cape Cod. But for the rest of us, the sun's going to be out. It's going to look nice. 
but the temperature is going to be in the 20s. It'll still be breezy too. So blustery wind chill in the uh, teens, both on Christmas Eve day and Christmas day itself. Thank you. Hot chocolate days coming up. That's the good part of this. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyes, thanks so much. Absolutely, Lisa. Happy holidays. You too. It's 440. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd, this film is rated R. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Taliban government in Afghanistan has started enforcing a ban announced just two days ago, barring female students from higher education. The ban, as announced, denies Afghan girls access to an education beyond the sixth grade. But it now appears it might be even more extensive, and some Afghan parents fear their daughters won't be allowed to go to school at all. Piers Dia Hadid is following this. She covers Afghanistan from her base in neighboring Pakistan. Hey there, Dia. Hi, Mary Louise. So I need to start with why. Have we heard anything from the Taliban on why this ban and why now? Right. Uh, today, two days after the ban was announced, the Minister of Higher Education, who's a known hardliner, gave a televised statement. And he basically laid the blame at the door of female university students themselves. He said... There had been violations. They were mixing with boys and not observing proper, modest dress. And in the Taliban's rule book, that's a full face veil, a headscarf and a long black robe. So in other words, it's their fault. And as we try to figure out exactly what this ban will mean and what it covers, we we knew the Taliban was banning girls from attending high school and university. And now I'm seeing all these reports about primary schools that they may also be shut to girls soon. Is that what you are hearing? It's been a chaotic situation in the past few days, but it's certainly a concern that educators have relayed to us. And we spoke to teachers in seven different schools today. They they all asked for anonymity because they're scared. Um, And what they told us was that their female colleagues were kicked out of school today and told to go home until further notice. And these expulsions are important because Afghan girls are usually taught by women. So when you kick women out of the education system, It means that when the school year resumes in March, girls won't have any teachers. So they're worried that there might be a shadow informal ban going on. And these expulsions were pretty dramatic. One teacher told us that Taliban security forces burst into their school and shuffled out female employees at gunpoint. The male staff were warned that if the women came back, there'd be consequences. That sounds, it's devastating for the girls, for the students, for their teachers uh, all around. Yeah. And we could hear it in the voices of the women who spoke to us. Uh, One woman who spoke to NPR just kept asking why this was happening to them. And one school principal just kept crying. You see, she had to tell her female staff to go home. And then she essentially had to fire herself by going home and not coming back. It's definitely been chaotic here. And this fear of girls being banned from education has spread. One senior religious cleric told us that he was told that all girls were now banned from Islamic seminaries, also called madrasas. 
and other educators just aren't taking any chances. Um, we spoke to a woman who runs uh, a madrasa for teenage girls. She teaches teenage girls the Quran and she removed the sign advertising her classes from the street down below because she said she'd get in trouble from the Taliban for teaching Islam to girls. Well, and I suppose this raises the prospect to you that whatever the official policy turns out to be when and if it's ever clarified that girls and women will be too scared to go back to school, too scared of the risk. That's right, because the Taliban in government has had a habit of not necessarily outlining with clarity the rules that they want people to follow. And so even though today uh, a Ministry of Education official said the Taliban security forces who ordered female employees to go home had acted on a misunderstanding. It's not clear whether that's going to assuage parents, teachers or the girls themselves that they're welcome to go back to school. And Pierre's dear Hadid. Thank you, dear. Thank you, Mary Louise. Millennial and Gen Z voters, those under age 41, showed up for Democrats this cycle. Republicans, on the other hand, maintained majorities with older voters. So where does this leave young conservatives who want their party to be the party of the future? NPR's Elena Moore reports. The GOP, the grand old party, isn't usually considered the party for the young. And former Republican congressional candidate Caroline Levitt knows that. She lost in November, and now the 25-year-old Gen Z conservative has a message for her party. Start recruiting young voters and fast. This is the greatest challenge for the Republican Party today, and the midterm results certainly prove that. Levitt is using her own experience as a candidate to push her party to restructure its online strategy, both on social media and through digital advertising. She says Republicans also need a better ground game. We don't have the grassroots institutions in place to turn these voters out to the polls. It's not that young people in conservative households don't exist. Of course they do. But we're not mobilizing them in the vast way that the Democrats are. Still, recruiting and energizing millennials and Gen Z, sometimes called Zoomers, can be challenging. Protecting abortion access brought many young people to the ballot box. John Della Volpe, the director of polling at Harvard's Institute of Politics, says you can't ignore how issues like abortion push people to the polls, especially younger voters. There's very little to no chance for a Republican candidate to win the vote of a Zoomer if they're not willing to recognize a woman's right to control her body. If you're not willing to recognize those things, you can't have a conversation with Gen Z. If you can't have a conversation with Gen Z, you're not going to able to motivate them to vote. For Iowa State Representative Joe Mitchell, who's 25 and a Republican, issues like abortion, climate, LGBTQ rights and gun violence aren't the kind of topics that you can shy away from. We have to be able to be unapologetic about our stances. Mitchell leads the organization Run Gen Z. It supports young Republicans seeking local and state office. On issues like abortion, which Mitchell voted to restrict in the state legislature, conservative viewpoints aren't always what people think they are. Plus, we believe in having a more renewable energy future when that works and when that's appropriate. And obviously, we want to make sure that kids are safe in school. And we just have different ideas of how to protect them. So I think taking these issues head on is important when they're asked about. Also unapologetic about her stances is 25-year-old Isabel Brown, a conservative media personality and contributor for Turning Point USA, an organization that engages young Republicans. 
Generation Z is a very humanistic, empathy-first feelings generation. To get more youth interest, Brown says the party needs to actively refocus away from just economic policy, which has been central to the GOP platform. For whatever reason, in this last election, the Republican Party held on very substantially to the idea that people vote with their pocketbook and their wallet first. And we just didn't see that to be true. Those stances on social issues, though, aren't winning elections for Republicans. It's that economic message that ekes out victories, according to Republican pollster Jim Hobart. That's why it's more successful for Republican campaigns to spend money on older voters, he says, especially in midterm elections where voters over 45 turn out at higher numbers and skew Republican. So you do have to make these hard choices. And on average, where are you going to go? Where more voters are, both in terms of your likelihood to get them and their likelihood to turn out. And here's one sobering data point. Young voters are expected to dominate the electorate over the next decade. In 2024 alone, close to 40 percent of millennials and Gen Zers are expected to vote. And for young conservatives, they don't want to leave potential votes on the table. Elena Moore, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Massachusetts fishermen. Set your holiday table with healthy, sustainable, fresh lobster, fish, and shellfish. Ask your server or retailer for the local catch. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, music beyond myth. There's a pop legend of Mozart, the child prodigy turned suffering rebel, but it's nothing compared to the true story that biographer Jan Swafford has revealed. And the pianist Robert Levin lets you hear a sociable, happy man who lived and died for the joy of composing. More than a genius, next on Open Source. Tonight at 9, Sunday at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR. This is 90.9 WBUR at the Garden tonight. Winnipeg has jetted into town to take on the Bruins, 7 o'clock start time. The Bruins have yet to lose a home game in regular regulation time this season. Celtics are back in action tomorrow night, and uh, the Bruins will actually be playing in New Jersey tomorrow. There's a high wind warning in place from 1 a.m. Friday through the day tomorrow until 7 Saturday morning. There's also a coastal flood warning in effect from about dawn tomorrow until 2 in the afternoon. Look for temperatures overnight tonight to be right about in the 40s. And then for uh, the rain, it should come down at a good clip overnight tonight and tomorrow morning. A lot of heavy rain during the morning commute tomorrow, so be careful. And then temperatures plummet late in the day tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 450. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a quote that writer Bill Littlefield had in the back of his head as he was writing his latest novel. It pertains to those pesky little questions we have about life, like what's it all about and what are we doing here anyway? The quote, we're here to get each other through this thing, whatever it is. Littlefield thinks our getting each other through life as a form of mercy 
He's called his new novel Mercy, and it doesn't have anything to do with sports, even though Bill was the longtime host of WBUR and NPR's Only a Game sports program. Nope. It has to do with the neighbors who live in a middle-class suburb of Boston, where the lawns are nicely landscaped and the residents run the gamut from a couple with a young boy to a mob boss named Arthur Balladino, who has returned home after a long stint in prison. Bill Littlefield, how did the idea of mercy become the thrust of their stories? I, I wish I could say that the idea of mercy inspired the whole thing, but it didn't. Uh, I started with a little vignette about a little boy playing an imaginary baseball game in the backyard. And his dad is watching him, and his dad is telling a friend that he's very uncomfortable with the fact that the boy has asked, what happens when you die? Mm. And and the man is explaining, I, I just didn't know what to say. I, I tried this, I tried that. I, oh, my goodness. And his friend is trying to reassure him that he's done just fine. And the proof that he's done just fine is they look out the, the back door and the little boy is playing this imaginary baseball game and just having a wonderful time. So whatever the father has said hasn't fouled the boy up in any way. It <laughs> satisfied this kid, and he's, he's worried that he might have corrupted oh, yeah, the kid's oh, brain yeah. for life. He's, he's, he's worried that anything he said, the kid would pervert into something that would make him miserable and, and keep him from falling asleep at night. That germ of a story led to a series of stories, all of which take place in this uh, neighborhood, among the people in the neighborhood. And again, give us that through line of mercy and how you saw it coming back as you were in the process of writing the book. I think the beginning of the appearance of mercy is with the friend consoling the father, saying, just don't worry. It'll be okay. Look, he's happy. Look at him out there. Yeah. He's healthy and he's happy. But as I started writing other stories that were taking place in the same neighborhood, as you said, I began to see that there were connections between the stories and between the characters. And the connection was that they all either had achieved or needed to achieve forgiveness and mercy and uh, they had to be uh, in some way comforted. And sometimes they did that by remembering things that had happened, and that things that they had known and seen and experienced much earlier in their lives. And some of them experienced by making new relationships. Uh, there, you spoke of uh, Arthur Balladino, the, the uh, man who spent most of his life in prison and comes home to die. His widow is left alone in a big house. Uh, of course, she's been alone for many years because he's been incarcerated, but at least he's still been alive. And she makes a new relationship. She she finds life in a, in a new relationship, and that's, that's the mercy that rains down on her, that changes her. Uh, and, and all of the characters, to some extent, have that connection. So mercy can be an expression. It can be a happening. It can be inconspicuous. Um, it, it's not something, as you say, that's kind of necessarily delivered on somebody. Well, but it, but it can be. It can be. There, as you ask the question, one of the things that occurs to me is my favorite episode in the book. Uh, one of the characters is uh, a kind of associate of Arthur Balladino, associate of the mob boss. And he's had a terrible life, and he lives alone in a crummy room, and the traffic is noisy outside his nighttime sleeping but much earlier in his life, as a teenager, he's sick, hung over on the beach after a, a debauch, and just wants to be left alone. And 
a woman he doesn't know, a young woman he doesn't know, comes up and grabs him by the arm and hauls him into the ocean. And he falls on his face and the waves roll over him and it's freezing cold and he suddenly jumps up. And first, of course, he's he's confused and angry about why this has happened. And then he realizes that he has no headache <laughs> and he feels wonderful. And the cold water has completely cured him. And he says to the young woman, hey, how did you know how to do that? And she just shrugs because she doesn't know how she knew how to do that. She just did it. <laughs> she just delivered. And it's a merciful act right, that she like can't explain. And he's, yeah, well, a sexy baptism in a way, too, because he remembers her much later, all his life. And, of course, remembers her as beautiful. She must have been beautiful, right? Think about what she did. She must have been. <laughs> that's, and his, that's, that's his point of view. So that carries him through the rest of his life. And Well, it, it, it sustains him in the sense that he remembers it, and he remembers being worthy <laughs> of that act. He, he, he wonders whether anybody will ever be that kind to him again. And there, there's a passage in the novel where Gibby, the name of the character who is baptized, if you like, and Francis, who is his associate, they're kind of minor criminals. And he tells Francis the story, and uh, Gibby says, I don't remember her name. I guess I knew it then, maybe. I mean, she must have known me, right? Why else would she pull me up off the sand and drag me into the water, skinny guy holding his head? I don't remember what she looked like either, her toes, I guess. I, I guess I saw her toes and her laugh. And today... Maybe she's dead. I mean, a lot of people from then are, but if she'd asked me right then, that day on the beach, I'm splashing around in the shallow water, going under, rolling around, and if she'd asked me to marry her right then, I'm good. Yeah, let's do this, I'd have said. This afternoon's good for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of impact that the event had on Gibby. It's almost as if these acts of mercy, large or small, give us something to hold on to. I think that's exactly right. They, they don't disappear from people's lives. And, and some of them are far more long-lasting than that very short encounter on the beach. Some of them involve people's lives changing, uh, people falling in love. And that, that is very much the message in the novel. Some of the acts are very large, and, and some of them are very small. I mean, a relationship where two people commit themselves to each other for life is very large. <laughs> at least in the lives of those two people. Uh, Especially a young when woman, things can just go bad uh, really fast. Absolutely. And and a young woman pulling a young man into the sea is very small, but, but very large at that moment for the man who suddenly made whole. <laughs> By getting rid of his hangover. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bill Littlefield, thank you. It's a really beautifully written book called Mercy. Bill Littlefield, thanks again. Thank you very much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox for lovers of British TV, offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at BritBox.com gifting. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Searchlight Pictures with Empire of Light, a new film by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, 
about the power of human connection during a time of great change. Now playing in select theaters. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. There is a winter blast that's leaving part of the upper Midwest in snow and ice, bringing mainly a wind-driven rain for us starting tonight. Look for high wind warnings in effect. Lots of rain tomorrow through the day, then plunging temperatures over the weekend. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. After a probe that's lasted more than a year, the House panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is winding down with the release of its full report, seen as one of its final duties. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, December 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, many Syrians have made a new life in Turkey, but an economic crisis and rising resentment there have put that refuge in jeopardy. They will not fully unleash their potential or contribution because they feel that at any given point, this might come to an end in an arbitrary manner. The plight of the Syrian refugees coming up. Winter weather's on the way. No snow for most of Massachusetts, just a lot of rain and unrelenting winds, then Arctic cold. Wyoming's governor talks about the intense winter storm and how it's affecting his state. The forecast is ahead. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is out with a warning to Americans ahead of the Christmas holiday. Take a massive winter weather system bearing down on a large swath of the country seriously. Some meteorologists are calling it a life-threatening system and urging people to prepare now. The National Weather Service is warning of record-breaking low temperatures that could turn some roadways into skating rinks. With as many as 135 million people potentially in the storm's path, in roughly half of the lower 48 states. Thousands of airline flights have already been canceled. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is ready to help China with COVID vaccines, though Beijing isn't asking. Blinken is planning a visit to China early next year, as NPR's Michelle Kelman explains. Secretary Blinken says the U.S. wants China to get this COVID-19 outbreak under control. That means getting more people vaccinated and tested. And, importantly, sharing information with the world about what they're experiencing. Again, because it has implications not just for China, but Uh, for the entire world. Blinken says China has not asked the U.S. for assistance, but that the U.S. is ready to provide help to any country that asks for it. He says any time the virus is spreading, it could lead to new variants, and he warns there are clear implications for the global economy. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The former CEO of collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX has posted $250 million bond and will live in his parents' California home as he awaits trial. Sam Bankman Freed accused of swindling investors and looting potentially billions of dollars in customer deposits on his trading platform. Bankman Freed was extradited from the Bahamas overnight and is expected to be released today after he's given an electronic monitoring device. U.S. District Court in New York has accused Bankman Freed of perpetuating a fraud of epic proportions. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey is agreeing to remove all the shipping containers he installed as a makeshift wall along the state's border with Mexico. 
from member station KJZZ, Greg Hawney reports. In a stipulation filed in federal court, Ducey said he would not only take out the containers near Yuma, but all the associated equipment by January 4th. Furthermore, he separately agreed to begin discussions with the U.S. Forest Service to remove the containers already installed in Cochise County when a schedule is agreed upon. The deal comes as Ducey faced a lawsuit from the Biden administration that asked a federal judge to force the removal. A press aide for the governor said Ducey agreed after getting assurances from the administration that it is ready to start filling gaps in the wall on its own. It isn't clear if the move ends further litigation. For NPR News, I'm Greg Hawney in Phoenix. Stocks fell sharply today mid stronger than expected economic numbers that are raising concerns the Fed's recent interest rate hikes may continue. The Dow dropped 348 points. The Nasdaq was down 233 points today. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The utility Eversource is predicting tonight and tomorrow's storm could bring power outages to some 70,000 homes it serves across the state. It says mobilizing hundreds of crews right now prior to the powerful winds and the heavy rains. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. It's all hands on deck, says Craig Halstrom, head of Eversource's electrical operations in the region. He says crews are prepared to deal with tree damage, fix power lines, and support operations on the ground. We did make the decision to to cancel all vacations here at Eversource. And, you know, and that's something that we that we do and our employees understand. We need to be there for our customers. So our customers, you know, if they get impacted, we can get their power on quickly and our customers can enjoy their holidays. Halstrom says some customers could see power outages lasting more than two days. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Ahead of the nasty weather, some school districts have decided to cancel classes for tomorrow. They include Newton and Provincetown. The storm is already affecting areas of the Midwest around Chicago and Milwaukee with heavy snowfall, and that has generated a domino effect at Logan Airport. More than 220 flights to and from Boston have been delayed today. Nearly 50 have been canceled. We'll have more in the forecast coming up. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton is applauding Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's speech to Congress last night. Moulton was in Ukraine just over a week ago. He says the U.S. has done a good job supporting Ukraine so far, but Washington needs to be getting more funding and equipment to the country sooner. And he was making the case that investing in Ukraine today is not about charity for Ukrainians. It's about an investment in our security, in our collective security of the free world. I've said for a long time that if we don't stop Putin in Ukraine, he's going to go somewhere else next. And it could be a NATO country, and that would mean U.S. troops are involved. Malton also notes he feels inspired and says he's more convinced than ever that Ukraine will indeed win the war. Georgetown State Representative Lenny Mira is mounting a legal challenge to the November election. A recount shows he lost his re-election bid by a single vote to Kristen Kastner. The lawsuit he filed this week focuses on nine ballots he believes were improperly counted and 14 mail-in votes he claims do not have proper signatures. Mira is asking a judge to either declare him victorious or declare a tie and order a special election. Elections officials have not yet found their response to the lawsuit. In the forecast, the storm on the way will make for a difficult travel day tomorrow. WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce has details. Showers move in this evening, then periods of heavy rain tonight into tomorrow will bring around two inches of rain for many of us with localized flooding resulting. The rain will taper off to showers by late tomorrow afternoon. The wind will be howling, damaging gusts 50 to 60 miles per hour out of the southeast and then southwest later tomorrow will result in scattered pockets of outages. A blast of cold air comes in tomorrow evening with some snow showers and slick road conditions. 
The wind won't be as strong Saturday, but will still gust to 40 miles per hour early, making cleanup efforts tough. It'll be a bright but chilly Christmas day. Highs in the mid-20s, wind chill in the teens. Right now in the Boston area, 43 degrees under cloudy skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. At the Capitol today, the House is racing to approve a $1.7 trillion spending bill ahead of a government shutdown deadline on Friday. Earlier today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer celebrated the passage of the measure in his chamber, despite the bill's difficult journey. A lot of sturm and drang, a lot of ups and downs, but at the end, a great result that really helped the American people. But that is not the only thing members are racing to wrap up. A House committee investigating the January 6th attack is set to release its full report by week's end. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us now with more. Hi there. Hey, Juana. All right. So let's start with the spending bill. This is up against a Friday deadline that comes with the threat of a government shutdown if it is not passed in time. Will the House make it? It could, but it will be tight. The plan stalled in the Senate overnight, but picked up steam this morning to gain final passage. But this is a bill that is more than 4,000 pages long, so it will certainly face some challenges moving through the House quickly. That said, the House is reconvening tomorrow, and members there are hoping to get it done in time before this deadline. Overall, it directs $858 billion to defense spending and $773 billion to discretionary programs. It funds the military, government agencies. It includes pay raises for service members and government workers and $40 billion in emergency aid to areas struck by public disasters and more than than $44 billion in aid for Ukraine. All right, so a lot riding on that bill. But like the end of most years up on Capitol Hill, this is not the only deadline that Congress is up against. The House Select January 6th committee could release its final report as early as today, right? Right. Could is the operative word there. We've been expecting this report for days. Initially, Chairman Benny Thompson teased to reporters last week it could be released as early as Monday. Then estimates turned to Wednesday, and here we are now still waiting for the report. So that's another massive document. It could be hundreds of pages long. And obviously, the panel is facing its own challenges getting that out in time. But they do have time. They sunset at the end of this year on the 31st. Now, with the House potentially wrapping up their work tomorrow, it's possible we do see it by week's end. Remind us quickly, if you can, a sense of what's in this report. Right. It's going to be a comprehensive historical record of the panel's findings, including evidence and details tied to the four criminal referrals against former President Trump. This is critical information if the Justice Department does decide to move on these criminal charges. Now, the committee has released a first collection of witness transcripts. What can you tell us about what we've seen so far? Right. Just moments ago, they released another tranche of transcripts, including for former Defense Secretary uh, Esper. And so this is tied to the more than 1,000 witnesses interviewed. And today they released transcripts also tied to former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, who delivered explosive public testimony this year. Her testimony documents show how she was initially represented by a Trump-connected lawyer who pushed Hutchison not to share everything she knew. Eventually, she changed attorneys, which led to her decision to testify publicly and share much more extensive details before the panel. 
Before we let you go, do you expect that more transcripts like the one you were talking about are going to be released soon? Yes. So much more could be coming in the coming days. We are expecting hundreds tied to the more than 1,000 witnesses' interviews, including members of Trump's family who testified and other high-profile former Trump administration officials. NPR's Claudia Crisales. Claudia, thank you. Thank you much. Now let's turn overseas for a look at southern Turkey and the shaky status of Syrian refugees in what had been a welcoming haven. Turkey hosts millions of people fleeing Syria's civil war, and many made new lives there, even helping to power local economies with businesses they've built. Now, an economic crisis and rising resentment have turned that reality upside down for many. NPR's Fatma Tanis went to the southern city of Gaziantep. That's the center of Turkey's biggest concentration of Syrians. Two years ago, the Syrian business owner and his family were offered relocation to Canada by the United Nations. But life in Turkey was so good, they declined and chose to stay. He now recalls the decision with disbelief and regret. He runs a phone store with his father on a busy street with many other Syrian businesses and wanted to only use his first name, Yusuf, fearing that speaking publicly could hurt his legal status in Turkey. Many of the working class Syrians have left. There's no one to buy our stuff anymore. In 2018, Turkey's economy took a downturn and has only worsened since. The crisis has been especially tough on Syrian refugees, many of whom are laborers and living below the poverty line. But Yusuf says there's actually a bigger problem. Racism, racism, racism. The Turkish people blame us for everything. Opposition politicians in Turkey have mostly blamed the country's economic woes on Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's once very welcoming immigration policies and scapegoated Syrians. In response, Erdogan announced a plan to, quote, resettle one million refugees in areas of northern Syria that are controlled by Turkey. And this year, rights groups say Turkey started arbitrarily deporting hundreds of Syrian men. Yusuf appreciates Erdogan's record toward Syrians, but he's tired of getting harassed in the streets and deeply critical of the deportations. The deportations have emboldened the racists. The smallest altercation with an angry Turkish citizen who might call the police, and you can find yourself at a deportation camp. You hear a Turkish view a couple of shops down from Yusuf. Murat Baikal owns a small grocery store. He says he feels like a second-class citizen in his own country. The Syrians are just everywhere. They own more than half of this street, get all kinds of help from the government, and they brought more crime to the city. But Baikal himself relies on Syrians for work, like his apprentice, a 10-year-old Syrian boy who's munching on snacks next to him. Of course, there are amazing people too, he says, like this one, reaching to ruffle the boy's hair. A lot of Syrians are working with Turks. Omar Kadkoy, an analyst for Ankara-based think tank Tepav, who is Syrian himself, studies the integration of Syrian refugees in Turkey and says the pressure Syrians feel hold them back from doing things that could help Turkey more. They live in fear because any minor mistake might put them at the opposite side of the border. And while this is going to happen, 
they will not fully unleash their potential or contribution because they feel that at any given point, this might come to an end in an arbitrary manner. In the old town of Gaziantep, coppersmiths hammer away. Narrow cobblestone streets are lined with shops selling spices and silk. The city was once an example of successful integration, taking in half a million refugees. Syrian Mohammed Salem has a shop selling scarves and jewelry from his homeland. It's the last of his stock from Aleppo. There's nothing left there anymore, he says, and things are getting tougher here. Here, the people, the refugees, they have stress, and the government, they don't understand that. So people, they have stress from the house, stress from the work, stress from the streets, stress from everything. He and other Syrians worry that if they're sent back to Syria, they'll face the same persecution they fled years ago. And they don't actually believe it'll happen. Uh, nobody can want to go back to Syria. Nobody. And the government know that. They're talking as the politics. This is politic game. Still, he says the rhetoric is harmful and he hopes to move his family to Europe or Canada because he just can't see a future for his children here. But if he and other Syrians leave, their Turkish neighbors will feel it. The director of the city's migration management department, Öndar Yalçın, told NPR in a statement that Syrian businesses help increase exports and employment. But the message hasn't gotten out, says analyst Omar Kadkoy. Unfortunately, there isn't enough media coverage when it comes to the success stories of Syrians in a way to combat the overall negative perceptions that are prevailing in the country nowadays. One of those success stories is Lubna Heli, who was an HR manager in Syria and fled in 2015 after her husband was arrested and tortured by the Syrian regime. Here, she got a grant from the city and opened a popular restaurant called Lazord, Arabic for the deep blue gemstone Lapis, where she, along with her mother and sister, cook and serve Aleppo home dishes. The restaurant is frequented by Syrians as well as Turks. She smiles watching her Turkish customers enjoy Syrian food, which is similar to Gaziantep's cuisine, but with different spices and flavors. My upstairs neighbors are Turkish, and they always send me plates of Turkish food when they know I work late, even though I have a restaurant. Heli says her life is in Turkey now and doesn't plan to go anywhere else. My two daughters speak Turkish fluently. I'm even thinking about expanding to another location. But the future for her and others could be decided next year. Back at his telecom shop, Yusuf says their fate will depend on presidential elections expected in Turkey by the summer. If Erdogan wins, he'll stay in Turkey. Otherwise, he'll move his family to rebel-held Idlib in Syria, where millions live under the threat of Syrian and Russian airstrikes. If given the choice between death in his homeland and suffering daily harassment here, he says he'd rather go back home and die with dignity. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Gaziantep, southern Turkey.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the Spanish Christmas Lottery. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. A December sell-off on Wall Street today. The Dow lost about 1%, 349 points, to end the day at 33,027. S&P fell nearly 1.5% to, to close at 38.22. The Nasdaq gave up nearly 2.25% to end the day at 10,476. It's 5.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Metal of Honor showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. Still looking for the perfect holiday gift? Get tickets to WBUR's winter season at City Space. They're now on sale. Check out the lineup of guests and get the tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The winter blast that's leaving part of the upper Midwest in snow and ice should bring a mainly wind-driven rain for us starting tonight. There's a high wind warning in effect in the region until about 7 o'clock Saturday morning. Look for some gusts of up to 65 miles an hour. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One of the worst winter storms in recent memory is now upon much of the United States. More than 10,000 flights are disrupted or canceled. Stretches of interstate highways temporarily shut down due to icy or whiteout conditions. And there is record-breaking, life-threatening cold. Take southeastern Wyoming, where yesterday the temperature fell 51 degrees in two hours. 51 degrees, two hours. Today, the forecasted low is negative 19 degrees Fahrenheit, plus wind chill. That's in the capital, Cheyenne, which is where we have reached Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon. Governor, welcome to All Things Considered. Well, thanks. It's good to be here. Um, I have spent a fair bit of time in Wyoming. Negative 19 is pretty darn cold, even for a state that's used to cold. Well, and in the middle of the state, in Casper, it was ambient temperature, minus 40 degrees. Oh, up where I was over the last couple of days at our ranch, I wanted to get there to check our cattle, um, it was minus, minus 29 last night. Uh, and on the way down this morning, I went through uh, temperatures ranging from minus 29 to um, right now it's about uh, six below zero here in Cheyenne. Oh. Are your cattle Okay. They are. Yeah. They are. What do you do to take care of them when it's that cold? Well, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty good at sheltering up. Uh, we make sure that they have lots of feed. Uh, the cattle have a pretty good fat layer on this time of year, and that's what keeps them warm. 
Uh, and one of the worst things you can do is try to get them moving too much in this cold weather. They spend a lot of energy uh, if they're moving. So yeah. try to find them where they are and, and work with them. Um, and I, you mentioned that you uh, made the trip down back to the capital, and I have been looking at traffic video from your state, I-25, for example, at a total standstill as a blizzard came through, and I mean, you could barely even see that there was a road underneath all <laughs> the white. Tell me how the roads are doing. What are the challenges you're seeing today? Well, yeah, today uh, is a beautiful, clear day, just very cold. Uh, so the biggest challenge is that uh, many of the semi-trucks and some of the pickups have gelled up. Uh, diesel fuel at a very low temperature uh, doesn't flow properly, and so trucks end up stalling out or, or uh, not being able to move very quickly. So there are a lot of those on the road. Uh, I, t- I will tell you our troopers and our, our uh, highway maintainers, our snowplow drivers, have been up all night long. They've just been doing a phenomenal job. Um, and, and so we've got traffic moving again, uh, and, and we feel pretty, pretty good about our, our circumstances. It's supposed to be pretty warm this weekend. <laughs> what, what counts as pretty warm in these circumstances? Well, back to above, uh, above 10 to 20 degrees. So okay. this has been Balmy. a big... Sh- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, just in time for Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> um, I know that you know this is not all funny and fun and games for a lot of people uh, who are trying to figure out how to keep warm, how to keep their pets warm, how to keep their cattle warm, their families. And I also saw reports of at least a couple of fatalities of first responders um, connected to weather. This was over the last week, but a, a medic whose ambulance had been hit. What are you hearing from EMT from EMTs and and others trying to serve in that way? Well, that was just an incredibly tragic set of circumstances, and I think sometimes people don't realize how slick the roads are, the visibility's low, uh, the, the tr- tremendous fatality that we that we had was an ambulance that got struck by a semi, um, and and so our hearts and prayers are with are with the family. Uh, the other EMT is in critical condition in the hospital here, uh, so we you know our really sad that uh, that that happens i think our emt uh, population knows uh, that there's a risk but nobody ever expects to see this no. what i will say that uh, is really great about wyoming is that uh, our homeless shelters some of them were over overcrowded but uh, made made more room uh, and we were able to get people in from the cold uh, and so far we haven't heard of any bad problems there. Good. Um, in the few seconds we have left, I wonder any message for people who will be on the roads trying to get to family, trying to get friends this holiday season? Well, I think the most important thing is to make sure you're prepared. That means, mm-hmm. you know, having warm clothes and making sure you have food if you do get stranded. Um, electric cars sometimes stall out in this kind of weather, so be prepared under all circumstances. Pack a blanket, pack some, pack some clothes, stay warm, stay safe. All right, Governor, exactly. thank you so much. Thank you. That is the Governor of Wyoming, Mark Gordon, speaking with us from Cheyenne. Last night on a central street in Madrid, Spain, there was a long line of people. Doña Manolita is a well-known location to buy lottery tickets all year long, but yesterday, yesterday was special. Bueno, pues a ver si hay suerte y no toca la lotería. Somos venezolanas y como 
Es una tradición de, del lugar donde estamos. It was the eve of the famous Spanish Christmas lottery, which dates back to 1812. People from all over the world lined up for their final chance to get a ticket, 20 euros apiece, at a place that claims to bring good luck to its customers. Folks there told us how they choose their sequence of numbers. Yo iba a coger el cumpleaños de mi abuelo porque falleció hace poco. And all sorts of dreams for the cash they hope to win. Pagar el piso seguro y luego no sé. Un viajecito o algo así. 43.399. And then, on the morning of December 22nd, millions of Spaniards around the country tune in around 9 a.m. What they see and hear are students from this one school in Madrid start drawing lottery numbers at a theater packed with members of the press and an anxious audience. Yeah, this is a whole event. Small balls with lottery numbers are entered into one big spinning drum. And small balls with different prize amounts are entered in the other drum. Then the students proceed to draw one number at a time, and they pair it with one prize at a time. Over and over and over again. All morning long. And this is heard on every radio station, every TV channel, in every store, even at construction sites. Until... 5,490,000! Until El Gordo, the big prize, it's drawn at random, and people... El Gordo awards 400,000 euros per winning ticket. And we say per ticket because there is not a single winner. Yeah, that's the beauty of this draw. Many tickets with the same number are sold, sometimes at different locations across the country. And there are also second and third and fourth place prizes for a total of more than 2.5 billion euros. This morning, in the center of the Spanish city of Seville, one lottery-selling location was a party. On the day of the Christmas lottery, even the stores that sell winning tickets, they celebrate. In Seville, employees of El Gato Negro celebrated with cava that they had sold El Gordo. The place was packed with members of the press and curious bystanders, some of them perhaps regretting their decision not to buy at El Gato Negro this year. Sí, siempre compro, bueno, compro aquí de hecho, pero este año he cambiado en otra lotería y no me ha So, on this December 22nd, we salute the millions of people who did not win the lottery, but enjoyed this day full of tradition, festivities, and hope. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bouldering Project in Union Square, offering a learn-to-climb program with instruction, rental shoes, and a one-month membership. Details at bostonboulderingproject.com. There's one factor I believe is most important in preventing another January 6th, accountability. Representative Benny Thompson at the final hearing of the January 6th committee. Accountability that can only be found in the criminal justice system. Will the Justice Department bring charges against Donald Trump? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. President Biden offered a moment of Christmas cheer to Americans this afternoon. Speaking from the White House, Biden said COVID-19 wreaked havoc on the U.S. and killed more than one million lives across the country. But now he said America is back on the right path. We're surely making progress. Things are getting better. COVID no longer controls our lives. Our kids are back in school. People are back to work. In fact, more people are working than ever before. Americans are building again, innovating again, dreaming again. Biden also wished Americans joy in the coming year. Since losing the Arizona governor's race, Republican Kerry Lake has claimed the election was stolen and promised bombshells in court. Jill Ryan from member station KJZZ in Phoenix reports that a two-day trial for her election challenge wraps up today. And so far, the testimony and evidence presented by Lake's team has been lackluster. In the first day of Lake's election challenge trial, her lawyers focused on the ballot printing issues at some Maricopa County polling places on election day. County officials say those issues were addressed within hours, everyone had a chance to vote, and all ballots were counted. In cross-examination, Maricopa County's attorney Joseph LaRue asked elections director Scott Jarrett about the intentionality behind the printer issues. Did you personally do anything to any ballot on demand printer to cause it to print too lightly to be read by an uh, precinct-based tabulator. No, I did not. The judge in the case is expected to issue his decision Friday. For NPR News, I'm Jill Ryan in Phoenix. By a bipartisan vote, the Senate today passed a $1.7 trillion bill to fund federal agencies through September of 2023. The measure also includes aid for Ukraine and money for communities recovering from natural disasters. The House is expected to take up the bill on Friday before it's sent to President Biden for his signature. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Greater Boston is bracing for high winds and heavy rain and coastal flooding tonight and tomorrow. Wind gusts could top out at 60 miles an hour at times. Water levels could be three feet above usual levels at high tide tomorrow morning in Boston. Mayor Michelle Wu is asking residents to stay vigilant. We're not ringing um, an emergency alarm bell by any means, but this will be one of the larger storms as we're headed into the winter season. City leaders are reminding people to stay away from downed power lines and to call 311 if they see any. They're also warning that rapidly falling temperatures Friday night into Saturday could lead to flash freezing. The storm's dropping heavy snow in parts of the Midwest, and that is disrupting air travel here in Boston on this busy travel day. Nearly 230 flights at Logan have been delayed today. 45 were canceled. We'll have the forecast coming up. The Boston Police Patrolmen's Association wants to go to arbitration as it seeks a new contract with the city. The union filed a request with the state's Joint Labor Management Committee this week. Officers in the association have been without a contract since 2020 and says current contract talks have stalled. Mayor Wu of Boston told WBUR Monday that she remains hopeful for an agreement. A member of the Massachusetts congressional delegation is echoing Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's request for more aid to fight the war with Russia. WBUR Samantha Kutsia has more. Congressman Seth Moulton visited Ukraine this month. After seeing this situation firsthand, he agrees with a lot of what President Zelensky said in his speech to Congress last night. Moulton says the aid the U.S. is giving Ukraine is not a charitable donation. It's an investment to protect national security. It's a down payment on saying that we're not going to let this happen, so don't even try somewhere down the road. Ultimately, that saves lives, that saves money. So it's not just about Ukraine today, as much as they deserve our help. It's also about us. 
Moulton wants to speed up the process of getting more resources to Ukraine. He says if Russia isn't stopped, it may come for a NATO country next. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. In the forecast, a storm is at our doorstep with the most severe conditions expected tomorrow. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce has more. Light rain arrives this evening. It turns heavier overnight into tomorrow morning with localized flooding. We'll taper to showers by late afternoon. Rainfall totals around two inches. Hit or miss snow showers tomorrow evening as cold air blasts in. We'll create some icy spots quickly. Onto the wind, which will knock out power. Expect gusts to 50 miles per hour, a few to 60, and scattered pockets of outages, especially inside of 495. Crews will have a tough time with cleanup early Saturday, too. Gust to 40 miles per hour still. At the coast, minor coastal flooding and beach erosion, then quieter, blustery, and cold for the holiday weekend. Highs in the 20s on Christmas, wind chill in the teens. There's light snow falling in western Mass as the storm approaches. Cloudy now in Boston at uh, at 535, 43 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Republican Kevin McCarthy, who's currently the House Minority Leader, is the most obvious candidate to become Speaker of the House next year, but he does not yet have enough support from his own party. McCarthy needs 218 votes to become Speaker, and next year Republicans will have a majority in the chamber, but a narrow one, only 222 members. And there are at least five staunchly conservative Republicans who have already said they won't support his bid. Here to dive into his strategy is the Associated Press's chief congressional correspondent, Lisa Mascaro. Lisa, thanks for being here. Hi, Juana. Thanks for having me. So there are at least five Republicans who have declared that they're not going to vote for McCarthy, and there are more current and incoming members who might not be inclined to vote for him either. So why not? What's the source of the opposition to him? Right. This is a longstanding issue. These Republicans are some of the more conservative members of the House Republican Conference. They are some of the leaders of the Freedom Caucus, which is the group of some of the most conservative. They are asking Leader McCarthy for a series of rules changes, ways to have a better seat at the table in decision making, in the ability to bring bills to the floor. But there's also an undercurrent here that some people say, that Leader McCarthy just will never be able to win over these detractors, that he's just not conservative enough. They're not sure he believes in all the things they want. They just are unconvinced in his leadership. So setting that aside for a moment, you mentioned some of the things that these holdouts are trying to extract from Kevin McCarthy, like rule changes and other things. Based on your reporting, do you get the sense that these are changes or concessions that Kevin McCarthy may be amenable to? Absolutely. Some of these changes are fall in the category of sort of longstanding complaints that rank and file members, often of both parties even, have about the way the House is run. But there are some changes the holdouts are seeking from McCarthy that may just be too far. 
One of those changes is this motion to vacate the chair, and that's the ability for any one single member of Congress to file a motion to require a vote to basically get rid of the speaker. The House would then have to vote. Do we want to boot out our speaker? That could be a bridge too far. The kind of change that could cost Leader McCarthy, if he were to become speaker, his job. So if we think big picture here, Lisa, what has been Kevin McCarthy's strategy to win over the votes he needs to become House Speaker come January? McCarthy has started by what you would think, sort of negotiating, working with people, holding closed door meetings, calling people into his office. He's somebody who's seen as sort of a real people person. But in recent days, as it becomes clear that these five or so holdouts do not seem like they want to budge, McCarthy has taken a harder edge. He was recently on a conservative talk show where the talk show host was calling uh, these holdouts knuckleheads and McCarthy said they're risking, you know, the start of the new Congress. So he has really taken a harder tone against his colleagues. And that really leaves a question of what kind of leader he is. Do you win over your colleagues by bringing them on board or do you win them over by sort of putting down the hammer? If we get to January 3rd, when the new Congress convenes with Republicans in control of the House and Kevin McCarthy does not have 218 votes, what happens then? Well, Juana, this would be historic. You look back to the 1923 speaker's election, and they had to go to rounds of voting before they finally were able to emerge with a speaker. McCarthy has said he's willing to go as many rounds as it takes. But, you know, there's a real question here. Will he pick up support if it goes to multiple rounds, or will he even lose more detractors? There is an opportunity here for McCarthy to become speaker by fewer than 218 votes. But if some lawmakers were to simply vote present and not cast their ballot, that would lower the overall threshold according to the rules and would then lower the majority needed to become speaker. So in the past, for example, Speaker Pelosi has been elected with fewer than 218 votes, as had uh, Republican Speaker John Boehner. That is another option that Leader McCarthy could try to take to win the gavel. Lisa Mascaro, AP's chief congressional correspondent, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Tis the season to better understand climate change. All that is what architects in Boston decided anyway. For their annual gingerbread competition, they chose Climate Ready Boston for their theme. WBUR's Barbara Moran took a look at their gingerbread creations. What happens when you give a lot of sugar to a bunch of architects and tell them to solve climate change? Well, you get everything from a gingerbread brownstone perched on chocolate stilts to a frosted duck boat. That's a boat that can travel on land and water, rescuing Boston landmarks on its roof. We have everything from like silly, silly creative ones, such as the duck boat over there with the, with city landmarks kind of toppling off it, um, to more, more realistic ones. Maya Urslev is the gallery manager at the Boston Society for Architecture and running this exhibition. It's been great to see how many different iterations of solar panels. There's been lots of creativity there. Chocolate solar panels, pretzel solar panels, even some made of cereal. One multifamily solar panel gingerbread house has a wall cut away so you can see the holiday scene inside. They have a section view of one of the triple deckers with a happy family celebrating Hanukkah on one floor and Christmas on another. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I love that touch. 
The Boston Society for Architecture, or BSA, has run the contest slash fundraiser for 11 years. This is the first time they've had a climate theme. The BSA has been particularly focused um, in the last few years really around climate inequity as the two kind of big systemic problems um, that architects need to face. Andrea Love is president of the BSA. There are a lot of strategies, particularly around resiliency and climate change, that buildings, whether they're gingerbreads or actual buildings, have to kind of deal with the, those challenges. And so I think that the structures are highlighting the strategies that we have and approaches that we have. The gingerbreads do hit all the climate-ready talking points, like bike-friendly roads, green roofs, and living shorelines. There's even a park with marsh grass made of shredded wheat. Almost everything is edible, as all climate intervention should be, even the duck boat. It is a great um, likeness to the Boston duck boat. And atop it, there are all these Boston icons, the John Hancock, Prudential Center, State House, presumably being saved by, by the duck boat from the rising tides. But it's hard to secure a building to a boat, and the Custom House Tower has tumbled into the sugary sea. The rod made out of pretzel supporting it has cracked, crumbling, perhaps, beneath the existential weight of climate change. Oh dear. Yeah, hopefully the, the designers can come and, and reconstruct it a oh, bit. Okay. I guess pretzel rebar is not gonna save us. Apparently not, that's not the answer. <laughs> Even if pretzel rebar and chocolate solar panels aren't the answer to climate change, at least not the whole answer, the exhibit highlights a lot of hopeful adaptations. I think climate change is often kind of a scary topic for many people, but I think that this theme and the way that the submitters kind of took it and flipped it on its head has, has turned it into more of a hopeful and playful, um, playful interpretations of that. So that's really great. Looking around at all the gummy turtles swimming in jello oceans, you can't help but feel if there are this many creative people thinking about climate change, the world is going to be okay. For NPR News, I'm Barbara Moran in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Filmmaker Damien Chazelle is a big champion of showbiz. His film Whiplash centered on a jazz percussionist. His musical La La Land chronicled a romance between a musician and an actress. And now he's back with a film biz comedy called Babylon. Critic Bob Mondello says it's about scandal-ridden Hollywood in the Roaring Twenties. We begin in the desert, much as Hollywood did, with a truck driver and client bit that feels like the setup for a Laurel and Hardy movie. Put down one horse in your signature right there. You just said one horse? Yeah, it's only one, right? No, it's an elephant. A misunderstanding, clearly. You mean really big horse? No. I mean an elephant. Manny's chaperoning the circus animal to a Hollywood party, and what follows will be Laurel and Hardy-esque slapstick in color with, shall we say, colorful language. Holy is that a elephant? Cut to Manny's car, towing the now elephant-laden truck up a steep hill. When the tow line snaps, the truck rolls backwards and 
well, I'll spare you the sound of the elephant relieving itself on its trainer, but let it be said that director Damien Chazelle is being honest up front. This is not going to be Tinseltown cleaned up for public consumption. It's the roar of the roaring 20s amplified to full-scale bacchanal, which is, as it happens, the next scene. The Hollywood party in full swing, folks cavorting and snorting and doing things I can't talk about on the radio. Big stars are there, including a Douglas Fairbanks type named Jack Conrad, played by Brad Pitt. This table only has one bottle. We're going to need eight. And also wannabes, including both Manny, played by Diego Calva, and a girl he helps sneak in, Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie. I'm already a star. Hmm. What have you been in? Nothing yet. Who's your contract with? Don't have one. I think you want to become a star. Honey, you don't become a star. You either are one or you ain't. I am. Do you know where I can find some drugs? By evening's end, they'll both be promised entry to a movie set for the first time, and it's a doozy back in the desert, maybe a dozen silent films shooting at once. Nellie gets to shine in an idiotic western as a barroom floozy. Manny attaches himself to the director of Jack's film, a medieval battlefield epic that's shooting with real swords, lots of injuries, and a full orchestra blaring away for atmospherics. Observing it all from a nearby hilltop, a Hedda Hopper-style reporter played by Gene Smart. Soldiers swarm the fields like flecks of paint from a madman's brush as your humble servant bears witness to the latest of the moving pictures magic tricks oh why do i bother look at these idiots i knew proust you know Writer-director Chazelle is every bit as smitten as his star-struck newbies. He includes film lore for aficionados, shout-outs to Fatty Arbuckle, to the women directors who were pioneers in what later became a nearly all-male world behind the camera. And with the coming of talkies, everything shifts up a notch. This was the moment when Hollywood debauchery prompted talk of a production code, and Chazelle serves up nudity, profanity, murder, rattlesnake wrestling, mountains of cocaine, and a probing look at the effect of film industry racism towards even black stars like the trumpeter played by Jovan Adepo. Next to them, Sydney looks white. Look, he's black. They won't think that in the South. Babylon feels over the top and enormous at three plus hours, reportedly down from a four hour first cut. It is a crazily overstuffed love letter to the glories of cinema, as characters keep telling us. It is too much and often, especially in call outs to Singing in the Rain, a little on the nose. It is also clearly heartfelt, and that counts. I'm Bob Mandela. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, the Boston Bruins close out their homestand with a matchup against the Jets. The puck drops at 7. The Bees play in New Jersey tomorrow. Celtics are also back in action tomorrow. We have howling winds coming our way tonight with heavy rain that should continue through part of the day tomorrow, making for a wet and potentially dangerous morning commute. Some of the winds could reach 65 miles an hour tomorrow, making it likely that it'll bring down some tree limbs and cause some power outages. Temperatures should be well into the 50s tomorrow, pretty mild, until tomorrow evening. That's when temperatures sink rapidly to the 20s, leaving roads especially slick. 
Then Saturday and Sunday should have sunny skies, but the Arctic air remains. Some of the strong winds as well. Weekend highs should be in the mid-20s. By the way, you can give your local DPW a hand and clear leaves out of clogged storm drains. That'll let the rain go where it belongs instead of pooling on your street. Tune in to 90.9 WBUR over the holidays. We've got all the news along with conversation, reflection, and even some weather forecasts as we wrap up 2022. Thanks for listening. There's this idea of there's always politicking and backstabbing in politics, people trying to get their own. There's this common saying in Peru, roba pero hace obra. O sea, he robs, but he gets stuff done. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Anthony Mora's latest novel is the opposite of a page turner, and I mean that in a good way. The writing is superb. It crackles. As I tried to read, I kept stopping and chuckling and then having to flip back two pages to read something again and to ask, how did he do that? The book is titled Mercury Pictures Presents. It came out in August, but I couldn't let the year end without finishing. Well, Anthony Mara joins me now. And um, may I begin by saying congratulations on publishing a novel in peak summer that turns out to be the perfect book. I'm finding to savor beside a roaring fire with, with my dog and a pot of hot tea for company. Well, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be with you. I should explain that part of what made me want to slow down and savor this book uh, is the writing, but also that there's so much going on. You have this huge cast of characters. You have action skipping between continents, also skipping around in time. It opens in 1941 in Hollywood, but then goes different places. In a few sentences, give us the elevator pitch. Like, what is this novel about? So Frank Lloyd Wright supposedly said that if you tip the world on its side, all the loose pieces will land in Los Angeles. And this was never more true than it was during the 1930s and 40s when thousands of refugees fleeing the war in Europe landed in L.A., where many ended up working at the margins of Hollywood in a studio like Mercury Pictures, which is a struggling B-movie studio that becomes a hub for European refugees in the 40s. So this book takes a, a look at this particular studio and sort of moves through the, the present and backstories of these myriad characters who find themselves stranded at the margins of Hollywood as Europe is falling into war. Among the refugees who finds herself stranded in Hollywood as, as war gets underway is your central character, Maria. Introduce us to her. Yeah, Maria is this tough, ambitious, irreverent striver. When we meet Maria, her boss, Artie, is under investigation by isolationists in Congress. Her studio is on the verge of bankruptcy, and her personal and professional lives are coming apart a bit. And like many characters in this book, she arrived at Mercury while trying to outrun her past. She grew up in fascist Italy and fled to Los Angeles with her mother after a childhood transgression led to her father's arrest. Yeah. Okay, let's stay there for a second, because among her many duties as Artie's assistant is trying to get their movies past wartime government censors. And it turns out this is a job for which she is surprisingly and uniquely qualified. Explain. Yeah. So Maria's father was arrested and sentenced to internal exile. And for years and years, all of their 
correspondence was mediated by a postal sensor in Italy. And so Maria has to learn from a very young age how to write around sensors. And this ends up being a skill that leads to her advancement in, in Hollywood. If, if you've ever watched an old movie and wondered why happily married couples sleep in separate beds, it's because this was mandated by the production code, which was the industry-wide censorship bureau. Uh, more insidious were the various prohibitions against politically sensitive subjects during that period. And so people like Maria, with a talent for insinuation and suggestion, were able to sort of skirt the edge of what was permissible due to the censorship codes of the time in movies. I want to dig in deeper on the relationship between Maria and her boss, Artie, the founder of Mercury Pictures. I believe you have brought us um, a reading that might shed some light on this. I have, yes. So this is describing Maria encountering her boss Artie's mini hair pieces, which he has lined up on his shelf the way a more successful producer might display his Oscars. As far as Maria could tell, the six hair pieces were the same indistinguishable model and style, but Artie had become convinced that each one crackled with the karmic energy of the hair's original head unrealized and awaiting release, like a static charge smuggled in a fingertip. Thus, he'd named the toupees after their personalities, the heavyweight, the Casanova, the optimist, the Edison, the Odysseus, the Mephistopheles. Artie had never felt more at home in his adoptive country than when he learned the founding fathers had all worn toupees, even that showboat, John Hancock. The only one who hadn't was Benjamin Franklin. And look how he turned out, a syphilitic Francophile who got his jollies flying kites in the rain. <laughs> I mean, people can just hear how much fun you had writing that. It was, it was a lot of fun to write. It, you know, so it, it was funny when I was, uh, I, I had been working on this book for a number of years and things finally came together during the pandemic, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it was this moment when the blank page was my only window to the world outside, the only form of transportation allowed to me. And I found that the tone of the book became much, much lighter as the world around me grew darker. And I remember I was printing out, you know, chapters as I was rewriting them and, and giving them um, to my wife. And one day I could hear her laughing through the wall. And I realized at the moment that I had finally sort of found the tone for the book and that if I could write a book that would keep my wife laughing through the wall, then I, I would have done something all right. I love that image of you listening and waiting and seeing if she was going to laugh. It is funny. I mean, staying with the moment in which you were writing, it's historical fiction. It's, as we mentioned, set in the 1930s and 40s, and you're examining fascism. But as you were writing, we're living through a moment where we're witnessing the rise of, if not fascism, certainly a liberal democracy in all kinds of places, um, from Viktor Orban's Hungary to, to Italy, which just elected a prime minister whose political party has neo-fascist roots. Was that on your mind as you wrote? 
Yeah, it's 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 never a great sign when a, a book set in the '40s becomes topical again, is it? Um, as as a novelist, I find myself trying to write the kinds of books that I would like to read, and and as a reader, I like nothing more than that feeling of being transported somewhere far from your daily life that nonetheless speaks to your daily life in in a deep way. And so, even as this book transports readers to a distant time, the ideas it grapples with are immediately relevant. As you said, whether it's the rise of fascism, whether it's the spread of propaganda and misinformation and conspiracy theories, whether it's the the specter of of refugees fleeing a disastrous war in Europe. The larger issues that these characters are confronting are, are similar to those that we, we face today. I think that one of the strengths of the historical novel as a form is that it allows us to recontextualize and reconsider our present moment in terms of the longer sweep of human affairs. So while Maria's story is very much rooted in her era, it's a story that nonetheless speaks to our own time quite, quite powerfully. I hope. Yeah. Uh, is Anthony Mora. His latest novel is Mercury Pictures Presents. Anthony Mora, thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bed Bath & Beyond with storage products, too featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and Ugg. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. And from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. And from Paramount Pictures with Babylon, in a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd. This film is rated R. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury. And 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It won't be snow, but we should get a winter storm packing a real punch in the way of drenching rain and powerful winds starting late tonight and lasting into the day tomorrow. The morning commute tomorrow should be tricky, and Arctic air should put us in a big chill tomorrow evening. The forecast is coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we'll catch up with a Ukrainian activist to find out what 2022 has been like for her and her family living through the war against Russia. And former WBR Only a Game host Bill Littlefield. He's written a new novel about neighbors in a leafy green Boston suburb. Their lives appear pretty nice, and they have something else in common. They all either had achieved or needed to achieve forgiveness and mercy, and they had to be uh, in some way comforted. Bill Littlefield on his new novel, Mercy, coming up. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal judge has approved a $250 million bail package for Sam Bankman-Fried. The founder and former CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX made his first appearance in New York City court since being extradited to the U.S. yesterday. NPR's David Gurr reports. According to the terms of the agreement, Sam Bankman-Fried has to surrender his passport and he'll have to live with his parents in Northern California. His mom and dad are both professors at Stanford Law School, and their home is securing the bond. On Wednesday, Bankman-Fried waived his right to fight extradition to the U.S. from the Bahamas, where FTX is headquartered, and where Bankman-Fried was arrested at the request of the U.S. government earlier this month. Bankman-Fried was en route to New York when federal prosecutors announced the co-founder of FTX and the head of Bankman-Fried's crypto hedge fund had pled guilty to fraud charges, and they're cooperating with law enforcement. David Gura. NPR News, New York. Officials in Ukraine are calling President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the U.S. yesterday a success. The Biden administration pledged to send additional military aid to Ukraine, including a highly sophisticated air defense missile system. But NPR's Ulian Haidal reports Ukrainians still fear Russian aggression will continue to mount. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Washington during his very first time abroad since Russia invaded in February. During his speech in front of Congress, he repeatedly thanked the U.S. for its support. One of Zelensky's top advisors, Mikhailo Podolyak, tweeted that Ukraine got four takeaways from the trip. He says Ukraine and the U.S. agree, quote, Russia must lose with no compromises on territory, that Ukraine will receive all necessary military aid, and that, quote, no one cares about Russia's hysteria. But Ukrainian intelligence sources tell local newspapers to nonetheless prepare for possible large-scale Russian airstrikes in response to Zelensky's visit to the U.S. Julian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. In a bipartisan 68-29 vote, the Senate's approved a $1.7 trillion spending bill that includes money for Ukraine. The House will take it up tomorrow. President Biden's annual Christmas message to the nation noted the effects of the coronavirus pandemic and also called on Americans to put aside partisan politics moving into the new year. Our politics has gotten so angry, so mean, so partisan. And too often we see each other as enemies, not as neighbors. As Democrats and Republicans, not as fellow Americans, we become too divided. But as tough as these times have been, if we look a little closer, we see bright spots all across the country. The strength, the determination, the resilience that's long-defined America. Biden acknowledged the country is emerging from a brutal couple of years, but calling on Americans to embrace the holiday and show kindness even in small ways. Stocks fell sharply today amid some stronger-than-expected economic numbers. The Dow was down 348 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Officials in Boston say they're prepared to face tomorrow's storm that promises heavy rain and the potential for power outages. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. Boston will likely experience winds of up to 50 to 60 miles per hour tomorrow. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is urging people to report down trees and power lines to 311 so city crews can clean them up. We are ready for this, but I just want to especially thank our city workers because it is a holiday weekend that this is, um, they are sharing their time away from their families as well to make sure we are all safe and prepared. Wu says coastal flooding could be a problem in certain areas of the city, with water levels reaching as much as three feet above high tide because of storm surge. Falling temperatures Friday night into Saturday could also lead to flash freezing. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The city of Newton will close schools tomorrow because of the pending storm. The mayor's office cites expected poor driving conditions. Ipswich and Provincetown have also closed schools for the day tomorrow. The MBTA is canceling all ferry service tomorrow because of the storm. The Steamship Authority has also canceled all Nantucket service tomorrow, and it's calling off all ferries tomorrow to and from Martha's Vineyard through at least 10 a.m., The storm is already dropping snow in the Midwest and upstate New York, and that's causing flight problems at Logan Airport in Boston. More than 230 flights have been delayed there. About 50 have been canceled today. We'll have the forecast coming up in just a few minutes. The state has named a temporary replacement for MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak. Deputy General Manager uh, Jeff Gonneville will take the reins on January 6th, the day after Poftak steps down. This will be Gonneville's second stint as interim GM. He also filled the role in 2018. He is expected to stay on as interim GM until Governor-elect Maura Healy permanently fills the post. Johnson & Johnson has finalized the acquisition of Danvers-based medical device maker Abiomed. The deal is worth $16.6 billion. That makes it one of the largest corporate acquisitions this year. Johnson & Johnson hasn't said whether the deal will lead to any job cuts. Abiomed has over 2,000 employees worldwide, about 900 in Massachusetts. Have an extended look at the forecast for you now. The storm that's sweeping the U.S. is at our doorstep. There will be heavy rain, strong winds, but not much in the way of snow for the Boston area. WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce is tracking the storm, and she says the radar is showing some light snow now in western Mass this evening. There are some blues and whites showing up, but it's mainly in western Massachusetts, down near Hartford, maybe a couple flurries. Um, But for us here in and around the Boston area, this is a mainly rain event. There may be a couple snowflakes that mix in in northern Worcester County this evening very briefly, but we're going to get warm. It's going to be in the 50s tomorrow, so this is an all-rain event. If it were snow... It'd be a little bit of a different scenario. We may be talking about feet of snow, and that's not the case this time around. And uh, we're talking about, I guess, inches of rain. You can tell us more about that. But when should it all begin and where? So in the next few hours, we're going to get some scattered rain showers that fill in. And then after that, it turns to a steadier light rain. Um, Overnight, especially after midnight, it rains hard at times. Embedded downpours that will linger into tomorrow morning for the morning commute and for those that are traveling. I do think by... Probably early to mid-afternoon tomorrow, we'll start to see things taper off a little bit from west to east from the Worcester to Boston stretch. Like if you're traveling along the Mass Turnpike, um, you know, things should slow down by mid-afternoon. There may be a few showers that linger until the early evening hours, but the bulk of the heaviest rain by far falls tonight until about late morning tomorrow. So for tomorrow's afternoon commute right around this time, um, not quite as tough as the morning commute? Definitely worse in the morning. I do think there'll be a few leftover showers, but the intensity of the rain and the coverage of the rain won't be as bad at this time tomorrow compared to tomorrow morning. Absolutely. And what about the winds? The wind, I think, honestly, is going to be the biggest thing that folks remember from this storm. So, you know, a lot of times we talk about the wind just gusty in one spot, you know, on the Cape or at the coastline, but this is a region-wide wind event. So, After midnight tonight, the wind's going to ramp up. It's coming out of the southeast. I expect numerous gusts, 40 to 45 miles per hour. And then probably like 3 a.m. until about 8 or 9 a.m., there's a brief window where we may gust 50, 55, even isolated 60-mile-per-hour gusts as some of that heavy rain comes in. So that will result in scattered pockets of outages, particularly inside of 495. I do think a little core of some of the heaviest wind will come in at that point. Um, And then during the afternoon, the wind may let up 
you know, just briefly a little bit. And then late in the day, the wind shifts around and will gust 40 to 50 again late in the afternoon into the evening. So it's kind of a two-pronged uh, wind event that comes in tomorrow. So a lot of people have travel plans. Um, what should those who are flying or, or driving know, especially uh, depending on if they're driving, where they're going? I would say, you know, if they're driving, northern New England is going to see a burst of snow if you're headed to parts of Vermont, New Hampshire, or Maine, but that will change over to rain. There is going to be some big wind similar to what we'll see in Boston tomorrow. So definitely the slowest go in terms of weather impacts tomorrow. The other thing I want to mention is tomorrow evening, even though the rain's going to be ending, uh, there's going to be a sharp drop in temperatures tomorrow evening, about 6 to 8 p.m., uh, think about it. We're going to get like one to two inches of rain. So any leftover moisture that doesn't dry out, there'll be some puddles, some standing water is going to freeze up on anything untreated um, out there. So some icy patches, some slick spots tomorrow evening may develop pretty rapidly. So just keep that in mind if you are going to be traveling tomorrow evening. Uh, you know, I like to say keep a close eye on the car thermometer. We're going to see a sharp fall from the 50s to the 30s pretty quickly. Uh, and that's going to create some slippery travel for sure tomorrow evening. And then recap the weekend, Saturday and then Christmas Day, Sunday. Chilly, <laughs> but at least it's much quieter. There won't be any precipitation to worry about. There may be a few um, kind of ambiance, nice little snow showers on Cape Cod. But for the rest of us, the sun's going to be out. It's going to look nice but the temperature is going to be in the 20s. It'll still be breezy too. So blustery wind chill in the uh, teens, both on Christmas Eve day and Christmas day itself. Thank you. Hot chocolate days coming up. That's the good part of this. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyes, thanks so much. Absolutely, Lisa. Happy holidays. You too. 45 degrees now in the Boston area at 611. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As this year has unfolded, I have kept up a running conversation with a fellow mom named Hannah Hopko. I first met and interviewed Hannah in January in Kiev, Ukraine. She was convinced there would be no war. Well, I left Kiev. We stayed in touch. And I called her again on February 24th, the day of the Russian invasion. Hello? Hello, Hannah. This is Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Hi. 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 Hi, hi Mary Louise. Hi. Hi. By that point, Hannah had evacuated her daughter. She and her husband and the family's pet guinea pig had gone into hiding because Hopko, a pro-democracy activist and former member of Ukraine's parliament, suspected she was on a Russian kill list. When I caught her, she sounded exhausted, but not afraid. Are you scared? No, it's not time to be scared. Putin has to be scared because he is a little gangster with the heart full of fear. A little gangster with the heart full of fear. Well, I have met Hannah Hopko twice since then here in Washington. She flies over to meet members of Congress and the Biden administration to ask for more weapons to fight Russia. As 2022 comes to a close, a year that has upended her life and her country, I wanted to interview her again. And I reached her today at a hotel in Warsaw, Poland, and asked her reaction to the visit Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, just paid to Washington, a visit during which President Biden promised more aid for Ukraine. 
I was uh, very proud of uh, seeing two leaders, President Biden and President Zelensky, because it's about strategic partnership to protect freedom and the victory of Ukraine will define the world in which our children, grandchildren will live. It's not about standing with Ukraine as long as it takes. It's about winning with Ukraine faster. You've said this every time I've interviewed you. You've said, give us more, give us more faster. We need more weapons. Fight with us and help us win quickly. I mean, President Biden, not only they announced $1.8 billion in military aid, they're asking Congress for many times that. And now the Patriot missile system. Do you feel like America is fighting with you, is standing with you? Um, I'm very thankful to American people. I'm also very thankful to presidential administration and Congress, bipartisan support. But my message is that Russian strategy of terror, which we were warning about from spring, so now in winter, we are facing the problems. If we were received anti-air defense system more in summer, so now we would not focus on generators and how to protect our nuclear power plants, uh, uh, Marie Louise. From the first time we met in Kiev in January, uh, I lost a lot of friends who sacrificed their lives defending freedom of the free world and Ukraine. So time matters for us. It's not about number of weapons we already received. It's about how to receive at the level when it would be enough that the best and the brightest people of Ukraine will not be killed. We want to save lives. So this is why we need more weapons and even more. Talk to me, Hannah, about what life is like in Ukraine right now. The headlines we hear that it is very cold, that a lot of people do not have electricity, do not have water. What, what is life like compared to this time last year? I know you were just in Ukraine a couple of days ago. Uh, can you imagine your life when you cannot take shower for weeks do not take shower and somehow survive but when there is no electricity no heating system and uh, poor internet connection for me it's not a problem but for elderly people it's a huge problem they cannot use elevators and they cannot psychologically afford all this Russian terror when they weaponized winter and want to freeze uh, all Ukrainians. Weaponize winter. Is that what you just said? That yes. Russia is weaponizing winter? Yes. I want to ask how your daughter is and Nafanya, her guinea pig. <sighs> um, uh, I'm thankful to God that my daughter is alive. But for the last 10 months, I saw her in summer. For uh -huh. seven days, 10 months, one week of seeing my daughter. Because you have been working and you're trying to keep her somewhere safe in a way. Safe. And also I feel this moral duty when my daughter is in safe place, I have to help my country to win faster. How do you explain to your daughter what is happening in Ukraine and what questions does she ask? So <laughs> today is the day of uh, diplomats and also sent Anna Day. And my daughter sent me uh, in WhatsApp like uh, greetings and saying, mom, I believe victory comes faster and we will be all together in a peaceful Ukraine. So f can you imagine that from 2013 hmm. to 2022, 
my daughter is living in the environment when seeing her mom in constant uh, fight from uh, Maidan in 2013. When the revolution, we yeah. And it was the revolution, and it was very dangerous for her. And she's how old now? On in March, she will celebrate her uh, 12 years old birthday. She sounds just like you. <laughs> she, she wants to fight, she wants to win, she wants a peaceful Ukraine. Look, in four years old, she asked me, Mom, if Putin dies, you will finally stay home and not leave in me? Yeah. And before I let you go, I don't think you've told us, is the guinea pig okay? Ah, guinea pig. Ah, I haven't seen, uh, seen our guinea pig from August, when guinea pig moved from outside Kiev for my friends to uh, Western Ukraine. And I'm sure if guinea pig stays with me for all these months and hear all my talks about weapons, tougher sanctions, uh, he would finally start speaking (laughs) very loudly and saying like, Hanna, please, what should I do? Maybe I should organize a campaign worldwide asking all guinea pigs to come to key capitals because I don't want to be freeze. I want to uh, finally to be all reunited. So even guinea pig became an advocate for for weapons. Uh, look, I have this sense of humor, but the situation is really very serious. Hannah, I want to say thank you for talking with us, with me all this year. Uh, you've really helped me, and I think a lot of Americans understand the stakes. What is at stake for your country? And I wonder, is there anything you want to say to Americans who are listening right now? I want to to say to all American friends, honestly, thank you. Because without your support, without your humanity, morality, without being with us, you Americans should be proud of your empathy. Because we are spiritual brothers and we will win because of your very big hearts. It's not just fight for Ukrainian territorial integrity. It's about being human beings. Hanna Hopko. She's the former head of the Committee on Foreign Affairs in Ukraine's parliament. She now chairs the Democracy in Action conference. Hanna, thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR, a novel befitting the season, Bill Littlefield's Mercy. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. On Wall Street, a December sell-off today. The Dow lost about 1%, 349 points. It ended the day at 33,027. S&P fell nearly 1.5% to close at 38.22. The Nasdaq gave up nearly 2.25% to end the day at 10,476. The company that managed construction of Worcester's minor league baseball stadium, Polar Park, has reached a settlement of nearly $2 million with the state. The agreement resolves allegations that the joint venture company Gilbane Hunt misled city officials by overstating the percentage of women and minority-owned businesses that subcontracted for the project. About one quarter of the money will go to the city of Worcester. It says it will use the funds to promote the participation of women and minority-owned businesses in government contracting. Marketplace has business news in just about 10 minutes. It's now 620.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Some wild winds tonight, a heavy rain that should continue through part of the day tomorrow, making for a wet and potentially dangerous morning commute tomorrow. Should have uh, some down tree limbs and power outages because of the winds. Well into the 50s tomorrow, pretty mild until tomorrow evening. Temperatures sink to the 20s, leaving roads especially slick. This is WBUR, 45 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a quote that writer Bill Littlefield had in the back of his head as he was writing his latest novel. It pertains to those pesky little questions we have about life, like what's it all about? And what are we doing here anyway? The quote, we're here to get each other through this thing, whatever it is. Littlefield thinks our getting each other through life as a form of mercy. He's called his new novel Mercy, and it doesn't have anything to do with sports, even though Bill was the longtime host of WBUR and NPR's Only a Game sports program. Nope, it has to do with the neighbors who live in a middle-class suburb of Boston, where the lawns are nicely landscaped and the residents run the gamut from a couple with a young boy to a mob boss named Arthur Balladino, who has returned home after a long stint in prison. Bill Littlefield, how did the idea of mercy become the thrust of their stories? I, I wish I could say that the idea of mercy inspired the whole thing, but it didn't. Uh, I started with a little vignette about a little boy playing an imaginary baseball game in the backyard. And his dad is watching him, and his dad is telling a friend that he's very uncomfortable with the fact that the boy has asked, what happens when you die? Mm. And, and the man is explaining, I, I just didn't know what to say. I, I tried this. I tried that. I, oh, my goodness. And his friend is trying to reassure him that he's done just fine. And the proof that he's done just fine is they look out the, the back door and the little boy is playing this imaginary baseball game and just having a wonderful time. So whatever the father has said hasn't fouled the boy up in any way. <laughs> it's satisfied that's, his kid, and he's, he's worried that he might have corrupted oh, yeah, the kid's oh, brain yeah. for life. He's, he's, he's worried that anything he said, the kid would pervert into something that would make him miserable and, and keep him from falling asleep at night. That germ of a story led to a series of stories, all of which take place in this uh, neighborhood, among the people in the neighborhood. And again, give us that through line of mercy and how you saw it coming back as you were in the process of writing the book. I think the beginning of the appearance of mercy is with the friend consoling the father, saying, just don't worry. It'll be okay. Look, he's happy. Look at him out there. Yeah. He's healthy and he's happy. But as I started writing other stories that were taking place in the same neighborhood, as you said, I began to see that there were connections between the stories and between the characters. And the connection was that they all either had achieved or needed to achieve forgiveness and mercy and uh, they had to be uh, in some way comforted. 
And sometimes they did that by remembering things that had happened, things that they had known and seen and experienced much earlier in their lives. And some of them experienced by making new relationships. Uh, there, You spoke of Arthur Balladino, the, the uh, man who spent most of his life in prison and comes home to die. His widow is left alone in a big house. Uh, of course, she's been alone for many years because he's been incarcerated, but at least he's still been alive. And she makes a new relationship. She she finds life in a, in a new relationship, and that's that's the mercy that rains down on her, that changes her. Uh, and and all of the characters, to some extent, have that connection. So mercy can be an expression. It can be a happening. It can be inconspicuous. Um, it it's not something, as you say, that's kind of necessarily delivered on somebody. Well, but it, but it can be. It can be. There, as you ask the question, one of the things that occurs to me is my favorite episode in the book. Uh, one of the characters is uh, a kind of associate of Arthur Balladino, associate of the mob boss. And he's had a terrible life, and he lives alone in a crummy room, and the traffic is noisy outside his nighttime sleeping. But much earlier in his life, as a teenager... He's sick, hung over on the beach after a, a debauch, and just wants to be left alone. And a woman he doesn't know, a young woman he doesn't know, comes up and grabs him by the arm and hauls him into the ocean. And he falls on his face, and the waves roll over him, and it's freezing cold, and he suddenly jumps up. And first, of course, he's, he's confused and angry about why this has happened, and then he realizes that he has no headache, and he feels wonderful. And the cold water has completely cured him. And he says to the young woman, hey, how did you know how to do that? And she just shrugs because she doesn't know how she knew how to do that. She just did it. <laughs> she just delivered. And it's a merciful act it's that she like can't explain. And he's, yeah, well, a sexy baptism in a way, too, because he remembers her much later all his life. And, of course, remembers her as beautiful. She must have been beautiful, right? Think about what she did. She must have been. <laughs> that's, and his, that's, that's his point of view. So that carries him through the rest of his life. And Well, it, it, it sustains him in the sense that he remembers it, and he remembers being worthy <laughs> of that act. He, he, he wonders whether anybody will ever be that kind to him again. And there, there's a passage in the novel where Gibby, the name of the character who is baptized, if you like, and Francis, who is his associate. They're kind of minor criminals. And he tells Francis the story, and uh, Gibby says, I don't remember her name. I guess I knew it then, maybe. I mean, she must have known me, right? Why else would she pull me up off the sand and drag me into the water, skinny guy holding his head? I don't remember what she looked like either, her toes, I guess. I, I guess I saw her toes and her laugh. And today... Maybe she's dead. I mean, a lot of people from then are. But if she'd asked me right then, that day on the beach, I'm splashing around in the shallow water, going under, rolling around. And if she'd asked me to marry her right then, I'm good. Yeah, let's do this, I'd have said. This afternoon's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of impact that the event had on Gibby. It's almost as if these acts of mercy, large or small, give us something to hold on to. I think that's exactly right. They, they don't disappear from people's lives. And, and some of them are far more long-lasting than that very short encounter on the beach. Some of them involve people's lives changing, uh, people falling in love, 
And that, that is very much the message in the novel. Some of the acts are very large and, and some of them are very small. I mean, a relationship where two people commit themselves to each other for life is very large. <laughs> at least in the lives of those two people. Uh, Especially a young when woman, things can just go bad uh, really fast. Absolutely. And and a young woman pulling a young man into the sea is very small, but, but very large at that moment for the man who suddenly made whole. <laughs> By getting rid of his hangover. Absolutely. <laughs> Bill Littlefield, thank you. It's a really beautifully written book called Mercy. Bill Littlefield, thanks again. Thank you very much. This is 98.9 WBUR. Rain has arrived in the Boston area. That means the storm is right behind it. The heaviest rain should continue through tonight and part of the day tomorrow, making for a potentially dangerous morning commute tomorrow. Some of the winds tomorrow could reach 65 miles an hour, making it likely there will be limbs brought down and some power outages as well. Temperatures in the 50s tomorrow night, but then Arctic air coming in right after that. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. <laughs>